The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe. This is a LibRox recording. All LibRox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibRox.org. For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I am about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief, mad indeed which I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet, mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburthen my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world, plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet, I will not attempt to expound them. To me, they have presented little but horror. To many, they will seem less terrible than baroques. Hereafter, perhaps, some intellect may be found, which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace, some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with all, nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy, I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets with which I spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth and in my manhood. I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure to those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog. I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature of the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is nothing in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early. I was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenital with my own, observing my partiality for domestic pets. She lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkable large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion, which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mean the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens, just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me whenever I went about the house. 
it was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character through the instrumentality of the fiend and temperance had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew day by day more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length, I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him. As I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when by accident or through affection they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto, who was now becoming old, and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill temper. One night, returning home, much intoxicated, from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him, when, in his fright at my violence, he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take its flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence ginagered, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debout, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse for the crime of which I had been guilty. But it was, at best, a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime, the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be at first grieved by the evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit, philosophy takes no account. Yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart, one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man, who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or a silly action, for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law, merely because we understand it to be such? 
This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong sakes only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse of my heart. Hung it because I knew that it had loved me and because I felt it had given me no reason of offerance. Hung it because I knew that in so doing, I was committing a sin, a deadly sin, that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it. If such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames. The whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, a servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect between the disaster and the atrocity. But I am detailing a chain of facts and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had here, in great measure, resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall, a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme. But at length, reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by some one of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with the view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of another walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period 
there came back into my spirit a half sentiment that seemed but was not remorse i went so far as to regret the loss of the animal and to look about me among the vile haunts which i now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species and or somewhat similar appearance which to supply its place one night as i sat half stupefied in a den of more than infamy my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogs head of gin or of rum which constituated the chef furniture of the apartment i had been looking steadily at the top of this hog's head for some minutes and what now caused me surprise was the fact that i had not sooner perceived the objects thereupon i approached it and touched it with my hand it was a black cat a very large one fully as large as pluto and closely resembled him in every aspect but one pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body but this cat had a large although indefinite splotch of white covering nearly the whole region of the breast upon my touching him he immediately arose purred loudly and rubbed against my head and appeared delighted with my notice this then was the very creature of which i was in search i at once offered to purchase it of the landlord but this person made no claim to it knew nothing of it had never seen it before i continued my caresses and when i prepared to go home the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me i permitted it to do so occasionally stopping and patting it as i proceeded when it reached the house it domesticated itself at once and became immediately a great favorite with my wife for my own part i soon found a dislike to it arising within me this was just the reverse of what i had anticipated but i know not how or why it was its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed by slowly degrees these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred i avoided the creature a certain sense of shame and then remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it i did not for some weeks strike or otherwise violently ill use it but gradually very gradually i came to look upon it with unutterable loathing and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence what added no doubt to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after i brought it home that like pluto it also had been deprived of one of its eyes this circumstance however only endeared it to my wife who as i have already said possessed in a high degree that humanity of feelings which had once been my distinguishment trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures with my aversion to this cat however its partiality for myself seemed to increase it followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend whenever i sat it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees covering me with its loathsome caresses if i arose to walk it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down or fasting its sharp claws in my dress 
clumber in this manner to my breast at such times although i longed to destroy it with a blow i was yet withheld from doing so partly by a memory of my former crime but chiefly let me confess it at once by absolute dread of the beast this dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil and yet i should be at a loss how otherwise to define it i am almost ashamed to own yes even in this felon's cell i am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive my wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which i had spoken and which constituated the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one i had destroyed the reader will remember this mark although large had been originally very indefinite but by slow degrees degrees nearly imperceptible and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful it had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline it was now the representation of an object that i shuddered to name and for this above all i loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had i dared it was now i say the image of a hideous of a ghastly thing of the gallows o oh, mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime of agony and of death and now i was intended wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity and a brute beast whose fellow i had contemptuously destroyed a brute beast to work out for me for me a man fashioned in the image of the high god so much an insufferable woo alas neither by day nor by night knew i was the blessing of rest any more during the former the creature left me no moment alone and in the latter i started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight and incarnate nightmare that i had no power to shake off incumbent eternally upon my heart beneath the pressure of torments such as these the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed evil thoughts became my sole intimates the darkest and most evil of thoughts the moodiness of my usual temper increased the hatred of all things and of all mankind while from the sudden frequent and ungovernable outburst of a fury to which i am now blindly abandoned myself my uncomplaining wife alas was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers one day she accompanied me upon some household errand into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhibit the cat following me down the steep stairs and nearly throwing me headlong exasperated me to madness uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand i aided a blow at the animal which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as i wished but this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife goaded by the interference into a rage more than demonical 
I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. The hideous murder accomplished, I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house either by day or night without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period, I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fractures and destroying them by fire. At another, I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again, I deliberated about casting it into the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as of merchandise, with the usual arrangements as so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally, I hit upon what I consider a far better expedient than either of those. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For the purpose such as this, the cellar was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed and had lately been plastered throughout the with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the rest of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation, I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar, I easily dislodged the bricks, and having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position while, the, with little trouble, I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair, with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster, which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minuteness care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, here at least then my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death had I been able to meet with it. At the moment there could have been no doubt of its faith, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept, a slept even with the burden of the murder upon my soul. The second and third day passed, and still my tormented came not. Once again, I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted. But of course, nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. 
Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came, very unexpectedly, into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigations of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly, as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end, folded my arms upon my bosom, and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say if but one word by way of triumph and to render doubly sure the assurance of my guiltlessness gentlemen i said at last as the party ascended the steps i delight to have allayed your suspicions i wish you all health and a little more courtesy by the by gentlemen this this is a very well constructed house in the rab desire to say something easily i scarcely knew what i uttered at all i may say an excellently well constructed house these walls are you going gentlemen these walls are solid put together and here through the mere frenzy of bravoed i rapped heavily with a cane which i held in my hand upon that very portion of the brick work behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom but may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arc fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry at first muffled and broken, like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph such as might have arisen only out of hell conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation of my own thoughts it is fully to speak swooning i staggered to the opposite wall for one instant the party upon the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and of awe in the next a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall it fell bodily the corpse already greatly decayed and clothed with gore stood erect before the eyes of the spectators upon its head with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman i had walled the monster up within the tomb end of the black cat the death shower by tom freeman from weird tales october 1925 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. It was a subtle crime that Crawley planned, but unexpected was its result. The Death Shower by Tom Freeman Crawley knelt on the floor of his bathroom 
in each hand a wire leading from the electric light socket over his head. He had spent a long time preparing for this moment, and there must be no slip. Tall, slim, and dark, with a face like a saint's, which only his flaming eyes betrayed in the dull haze of the February dawn, he waited until the cascading shower in the room below should tell him that his victim, the man he hated as much as he loved that man's wife, should be in his control. His ear pressed to the pipe, he heard the water splashing. The gay whistle that usually accompanied the running steam was absent, and for a moment Crawley wondered. Then he roused himself. He must act quickly. He could hear the man below moving under the shower. Removing his head from danger, Crawley firmly wrapped the naked wires around the pipe. Quickly, he pressed his ear to the floor. He heard a moan, followed by a duller sound, as if the bather, slipping on a cake of soap, had fallen into the tub. Then silence, except for the sound of steadily flowing water. Crawley jerked the wire from the pipe and replaced the electric bulb in its socket. Taking the cord into his living room, he restored it to the electrical floor lamp from which he had removed it, and placidly sat down to wait. It would not be long until Margaret Brinslow would note the tardiness of her husband, and would go to call him. She would find the door locked, would become alarmed at the water seeping under the door, and would call neighbors who would break down the door. Then Margaret would find the body, would grieve appropriately. In due time she and Crawley would wed. It was a pleasant outlook, and Crawley smiled as he settled himself more comfortably. Crawley did not regard Brinslow's death as a crime. From childhood his only definition of crime had been blunder, and he viewed as criminal only those who got caught. He had fallen in love with Margaret Brinslow fourteen months before. Never had a woman appealed to him as did she, for the strangest reason in the world. She was a Puritan, from the sole of her highly arched foot to the top of her pretty little head. She loved him, she had admitted as much, at a moment of tense importuning. But she would not bend herself to his moral code. She refused to run away with him, although confessing that she did not love her husband. She asserted that it was her duty to stick with the man she had married. She would not think of divorce. Only one thing could so separate them that she would marry Crawley, and that was her husband's death. She had caught the little gleam that flickered in Crawley's eyes at this, although he had long thought himself capable of concealing his emotions. "'It would have to be a natural death, too,' she had added. "'If you should kill him, I would hate you forever.' and we could never be happy together, either here or hereafter." Crawley's ideas of the hereafter being highly nebulous, he told himself what he did not tell her, that he must have her as soon as it could be arranged. He must not only outwit the police—dumb bells in uniform, he characterized them. 
but he must also outwit Margaret. He knew Brinslow was in such good physical condition that his death in the natural course of events would be a matter of years, and Crawley was unwilling to wait so long. Besides, in the meantime Margaret would be growing old, and to his mind, less attractive. Consequently, much to the neglect of several of the other dubious enterprises in which he was engaged, Crawley had pondered over a method of slaying Brinslow, so none would ever know except himself. With that in view, he had framed his plan, and, unknown to the Brinslows, had rented this apartment above theirs. He had been compelled to wait for several months before the rooms were vacant. He had been afraid to offer to buy out the former tenant's lease, for fear the offer would create curiosity. If Margaret ever went back on him, he could tell her how her first husband met his death. He grinned as he thought of the shock that would convey to her puritanical soul. How kind the gods were to men who only dared! Crawley yielded himself to the thoughts of the woman who would soon be his. At last he would be able to comb that taunty cascade of hair with his fingers. He would bruise her lips with his, her lips for which he thirsted greatly. He would be able to hold her close, and none could deny him. And all the time he would be able to smile in the back of her head over the thing he knew that she would never know, so long as she was good to him. The coroner would say that Brinstow had died from heart disease. Well, it would be that, except the disease had been in Crawley's heart. But soon he hoped to mend it, for Margaret would be his. He had waited more than a year for this day. It would not be hard to wait a little longer, to wait until the body was found, until after the funeral, until after Margaret's period of mourning, and then to marry her. Picking up a copy of a magazine to while away the time that would pass before the body would be discovered, Crawley smiled again. He could flee, to return later, but there was no need. He wanted to hear Margaret weeping, to see if there would not be an undertone of relief in her outcries at her husband's death. He read one brief story through, and yet there was no stir from below. Twenty minutes passed. Crawley became restless. After five more minutes he strode into the bathroom and placed his ear to the water pipe. The water was still running. Misgiving struck him, then he knew himself for a fool. Evidently Margaret was sleeping late, as she usually did, and likely would not be stirring about for half an hour or so longer. Crowley went back to his living room and resumed his vigil. This time he had not long to wait. In a few minutes he heard scurrying feet below. Someone was pounding violently on the door. Margaret, no doubt. Probably she was calling in a low voice to her husband. Perhaps she was hoping that something had occurred. Someone else came along the hall, and the pounding was redoubled. In two minutes there was a crash as the door fell. 
A woman's cry followed. Crowley grinned. At least Margaret was free. A clamor of voices filled the hallway, and there was a tramp of several feet. He heard a man cry out, Into that room! I'll get a doctor! Suddenly, Crawley became bold. He wanted to see the man whose life he had taken, to gloat over his deed, and, if possible, to steal a glance at Margaret. He knew she would be too distracted to notice him, especially if he kept in the background. She was probably in her bedroom by this time, likely in a dead faint. Putting on a big coat, the collar of which he pulled up around his face, and pulling his hat low over his eyes, Crawley started downstairs. He ran into a man in the hall. Crawley seized the man's arm. "'What's the noise about?' Crawley asked. "'Is something wrong?' The man's answer was to point down the hall. Crawley wheeled, planning to feign surprise when he saw Brinstow's body. In the darkened hall he could observe nothing but a shadow form on a blanket. Simulating concern, he strode forward. The body on the blanket was that of Margaret. The tawny hair he had loved was wet and stringy, and the eyes were stiff in death. The man was made of steel. He gave no sign that he had met the shock of his life, except for the dilation of his eyes, which went unnoticed in the half-light. "'We found her in the bathtub,' said the stranger, his voice low, as if not to awaken the dead woman. "'Evidently she died of heart failure. That's strange, though, in one so young.' Crawley turned around. He wished the blithering idiot would go, that he would be left alone with Margaret. There was a scurry at the door. Another man came bursting through the hall. He did not see the blanket and its burden. "'Where's Mrs. Brinslow?' he asked. Crawley pointed to the body. "'Is she dead?' He read the answer in Crawley's face. "'I'm almost glad,' the newcomer cried hoarsely. I came here to tell her her husband was killed in an auto wreck this morning. The End of The Death Shower by Tom Freeman The Door by Henry S. Whitehead From Weird Tales, November 1924 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. A Storyette of Real Distinction. The Door by Henry S. Whitehead. Those in the motor car hardly felt the slight, though sickening, impact. It was rather, indeed, because of the instinct for something gone wrong than because of conviction that he had struck anything more important than a roll of tangled burlap from some passing moving van that the driver brought his heavy car to a stop with a grinding of brakes strenuously applied and went back to see what he had struck he had turned the corner almost incidentally 
but when he alighted and went back when the thin gleam of his flashlight revealed to him the heap of huddled pulp that lay there the driver realized in the throes of a hideous nausea what it was his heavy machine had spun and crushed roger phillips intent upon the first really decent act of his whole life hardly noticed what was forward he had been crossing the street he continued to be intent on his own concerns interrupted only by a kind of cold shudder to which he gave only passing thought as if with the very outer edges of his mind he did not stop but crossed the sidewalk looking up as he had done many times before to assure himself that the lights were out in the living room of the apartment up there on the third floor of the apartment house they were out as he had confidently anticipated and reassured he quickly mounted the stairs to the front entrance someone came out hurriedly and passed him as he entered the rush taking him by surprise he turned his head as quickly as he could to avoid recognition it was old mr oster his father's neighbor who had rushed out the elderly man was in his shirt sleeves and appeared greatly agitated so much so that young phillips was certain he had not been recognized hardly even noticed indeed he breathed an audible sigh of relief he did not want old oster to mention this chance meeting to his father the next time he should see him and he knew oster to be gregarious the young man mounted lightly and hurriedly the two flights of steps that led to the door of his father's apartment he thrust his key into the patent lock of the apartment door confidently almost without thought a mechanical motion as mechanically he turned the key to the right it was an old key and it fit the keyhole easily he knew that his father and mother were at the symphony concert they had not missed one for years during the season for symphony concerts and this was their regular night he had chosen this night for that reason he knew the colored maid was out too he had seen her not five minutes earlier getting on a car to boston the coast as he phrased the thought to himself somewhat melodramatically was clear he was certain of security from interruption only let him get safely into the apartment do what he had to do and as quietly and unobtrusively depart and he would be satisfied quite satisfied but the lock offered unexpected resistance it was inexplicable irritating his over-tense nerves revolted abruptly at this check the key had slipped into the slot as always without difficulty but it would not turn furiously he twisted it this way and that at last he removed it and stared at it curiously there was nothing amiss with the key could his father have had the lock changed anger and quick shame smote him suddenly he looked closely at the lock no it was unchanged 
There were the numberless tiny scratch marks of innumerable insertions. It was the same. Gingerly, carefully, he inserted the key again. He turned it to the right. Of course it turned to the right. He remembered that clearly. He had so turned it countless times. But it did not move. He put out all his puny strength, and still it would not turn. Hot exasperation shook him. As he swore under his breath in his irritation at this bar to the fulfillment of his purpose, he became for the first time conscious of a rising commotion in the street below, and he paused, irresolutely, and listened, his nerves suddenly strung taut. Many voices seemed to be mingled in the excited hum that came to his ears. Bits of phrases, even, could be distinguished. Something had happened down there, it seemed. As he listened, the commotion of spoken sound resolved itself into a tone which, upon his subconscious effort to analyze it, seemed to him to express horror and commiseration, with an overtone of fear. The fear communicated itself to him. He shook as the voice of the growing throng, a blended corporate voice, came up to him in sickening waves of apprehension. What if this should mean an interruption? Impatiently wrenching himself away from his preoccupation and back to his more immediate concern with the door, he thrust the key into the lock a third time, this time aggressively, violently. Again he tried to snap the lock. Again it resisted him, unaccountably, devilishly, as it seemed to him. Then, in his pause of desperation, he thought he heard his own name spoken. He could feel his face go white, the roots of his hair prickle. He listened intently, crouched cat-like, there on the empty landing before the door of his father's apartment. And as he listened, every nerve intent, he heard the entrance door below flung open, and the corporate voice of the throng outside, hitherto muffled and faint, came to him suddenly in a wave of sound, jumbled and obscure as a whole, but with certain strident voices strangely clear and distinct. A shuffle of heavy feet came to his ears, as if several persons were entering the lower hallway, their footsteps falling heavily upon the tiled floor. They would be coming upstairs. He shrank back against the door, that devilish door. If only he could get it open. Something like this, he told himself in a wave of self-pity that swept him. Something like this, unexpected, unforeseen, unreasonable. Something like this was always happening to him. That door. It was an epitome of his futile, worthless life. That had happened to him, just the same kind of thing, a month ago, when he had been turned out of his home. The events of the intervening weeks rushed galloping through his over-tensed mind. And now, as ever since that debacle, 
there was present with him a kind of unforgettable version of his mother his poor mother her face covered with tears which she made no effort to wipe away his poor mother looking at him stricken through those tears which blurred her face and there was his father the kindly face set now in a stern mask pale with deep lines his father telling him that this was the end there would be no public prosecution was he not their son but he must go now his home would no longer be his home he recalled the dazed days that followed the mechanical activities of his daily employment his search half-hearted for a furnished room he recalled shuddering the several times when moved by the mechanism of long-established usage he had nearly taken the alliston car for home which was to be no longer his home he had not sent back the key he could not tell why he had kept it he had forgotten to hand it back to his father when he left and his father doubtless unthinking had not suggested its return that is why he still had it and here he stood now on the very threshold of that place which had been home for him for many years about to make the restitution that would do something to remove the sadness of all the blots on his conscience and he could not get in the men talking with hushed voices had reached the first landing young philip caught by a sudden gust of abject terror shrank against the stubborn door which unaccountably he could not open then his mind readjusted itself he remembered that he had no reason for concealment for fear even though he might be seen here even though these people should be coming all the way up the stairs it could not matter let him be seen what of it he was supposed to live here of course it was only a short time since he had actually ceased to live here and his father had said nothing no public charges had been made against him how one's conscience could make one a coward under the invigorating stress of this reaction he straightened himself stood up boldly realizing that it might appear odd for him to be discovered standing here aimlessly on the landing he started to go downstairs but by now the narrow staircase was completely blocked by the ascending group he stopped halfway from that flight the men were carrying something something heavy and of considerable bulk it would seem he could not see clearly in the dim light just what it was he stopped halfway down but none of the men carrying the awkward bundle covered with what appeared to be an automobile curtain looked up nor appeared to notice him neither did the straggling group of men and a woman or two who were following them fascinated he gazed at what they were carrying as they approached and took the turn in the stairs 
so that the electric light on the upper landing shone more directly upon it, he looked closer. It was the body of a man. It hung limp and ungainly in their somewhat awkward grasp as they shouldered up toward him. Something about it seemed vaguely familiar. The details presenting themselves to his fascinated gaze in rapid succession. The trouser ends. The shoes. The men turned the last corner in the winding stairway and came into full view. As they turned the corner, the leather curtain slipped, and the face of the dead man was, for a moment, exposed to view. Roger Phillips looked at it, fascinated, horrified. Then one of the men, halting for an instant, drew the corner of the curtain over the face again, and he could no longer see it. The head rolled. The broken body had been grievously crushed. Roger Phillips, utterly distraught, cowered, a limp heap, against the unyielding door of his father's apartment. He had looked for one horrific instant into his own distorted, dead face. The men, breathing hard, reached the landing. One of them gingerly shifted his portion of the burden upon the shoulder of another, stepped forward to ring the bell of the Phillips apartment. No one answered the bell. The man rang again, impatiently, insistently. The bell trilled inside the empty apartment. The man stood, silent, shifting uneasily from one foot to another. Behind them, a thin mutter came from the waiting stragglers who had followed them, moved by an inordinate curiosity. "'There's a key stuck in the door,' said the man who had rung the bell. "'Guess we'd be all right if we opened the door and took the young fellow in. There doesn't seem to be anyone home.' A murmur of assent came from the other men. He turned the key to the left, then to the right and the door opened. They carried the broken body inside and carefully laid it out on the sofa in the living room. The End of The Door by Henry S. Whitehead The Horror Horn by E. F. Benson This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Tucker. The Horror Horn by E. F. Benson. For the past ten days, Alubel had basked in the radiant midwinter weather proper to its eminence of over six thousand feet. From rising to setting, the sun, so surprising to those who have hitherto associated it with a pale, tepid plate indistinctly shining through the murky air of England, had blazed its way across the sparkling blue, and every night the serene and windless frost had made the stars sparkle like illuminated diamond dust. Sufficient snow had fallen before Christmas to content the skiers, and the big rink sprinkled every evening had given the skaters each morning a fresh surface on which to perform their slippery antics. Bridge and dancing served to while away the greater part of the night, and to me now for the first time, tasting the joys of a winter in Ingadine, it seemed that a new heaven and a new earth had been lighted, warmed, 
and refrigerated for the special benefit of those who, like myself, had been wise enough to save up their days of holiday for the winter. But a break came in these ideal conditions. One afternoon the sun grew vapor-veiled, and up the valley from the northwest a wind, frozen with miles of travel over ice-bound hillsides, began scouting through the calm halls of the heavens. Soon it grew dusted with snow, first in small flakes driven almost horizontally before its congealing breath, and then in larger tufts as of swan's down. And through all day for a fortnight before the fate of nations and life and death had seemed to me of far less importance than to get certain tracings of the skate blades on the ice of proper shape and size. It now seemed that the one paramount consideration was to hurry back to the hotel for shelter. It was wiser to leave rocking turns alone than to be frozen in their quest. I had come out here with my cousin, Professor Ingram, the celebrated physiologist and alpine climber. During the serenity of the last fortnight, he had made a couple of notable winter accents, but this morning his weather wisdom had mistrusted the signs of the heavens, and instead of attempting the ascent of Pizpazug, he had waited to see whether his misgivings justified themselves. So there he sat now in the hall of the admirable hotel with his feet on the hot water pipes and the latest delivery of the English post in his hands. This contained a pamphlet concerning the result of the Mount Everest expedition, of which he had just finished the perusal when I entered. "'A very interesting report,' he said, passing it to me, "'and they certainly deserve to succeed next year. But who can tell what that final six thousand feet may entail? Six thousand feet more than when you have already accomplished twenty-three thousand does not seem much, but as present no one knows whether the human frame can stand exertion at such a height.' It may affect not the lungs and heart only, but possibly the brain. Delirious hallucinations may occur. In fact, if I did not know any better, I should have said that one such hallucination had occurred to the climbers already. And what was that? I asked. You will find that they thought they came across the tracks of some naked human foot at a great altitude. That looks at first sight like a hallucination. What more natural than a brain excited and exhilarated by the extreme height should have interpreted certain marks in the snow as footprints of a human being? Every bodily organ at these altitudes is exerting itself to the utmost to do its work. And the brain seizes on those marks in the snow and says, Yes, I'm all right, I'm doing my job, and I perceive marks in the snow which I affirm are human footprints. You know, even at this altitude, how restless and eager the brain is, how vividly, as you told me, you dream at night... Multiply that stimulus and that consequent eagerness and restlessness by three. And how natural that the brain should harbor illusions. What, after all, is the delirium which often accompanies high fever but the effort of the brain to do its work under the pressure of feverish conditions? It is so eager to continue perceiving that it perceives things which have no existence. And yet you don't think that these naked human footprints were illusions, said I. You told me you would have thought so if you had not known better. He shifted in his chair and looked out of the window a moment. The air was thick now with the density of the big snowflakes that were driven along by the squealing northwest gale. Quite so, he said. In all probability, the human footprints were real human footprints. I expect that they were the footprints, anyhow, of a being more nearly a man than anything else. My reason for saying so is that I know such beings exist. I've even seen quite near at hand, and I assure you I did not wish to be nearer in spite of my intense curiosity. The creature, shall we say, which would make such footprints. And if the snow was not so dense, I could show you the place where I saw him. He pointed straight out of the window, where across the valley lies the huge tower of the Ungahoyerhorn, 
with the carved pinnacle of rock at the top like some gigantic rhinoceros horn. On the one side only, as I knew, was the mountain practicable, and that for none but the finest climbers. On the other three, a succession of ledges and precipices rendered it unscalable. Two thousand feet of sheer rock formed the tower. Below were five hundred feet of fallen boulders, up to the edge of which grow dense woods of larch and pine. Upon the Ungahoyer horn? I asked. Yes, up until twenty years ago it had never been ascended, and I, like several others, spent a lot of time in trying to find a route up it. My guide and I sometimes spent three nights together at the hut beside the Blumen Glacier, prowling round it, and it was by luck, really, that we found the route, for the mountain looks even more impracticable from the far side than it does from this. But one day we found a long transverse fissure in the side which led to a negotiable ledge. Then there came a slanting ice coilure, which you could not see till you got to the foot of it. However, I need not go into that. The big room where we sat was filling up with cheerful groups driven indoors by this sudden gale and snowfall, and the cackle of merry tongues grew loud. The band, too, that invariable appanage of tea-time at Swiss resorts, had begun to tune up for the usual potpourri from the works of Puccini. Next moment, the sugary, sentimental melodies began. "'Strange contrast,' said Ingram. "'Here are we, sitting warm and cozy, our ears pleasantly tickled with these little baby tunes, and outside is the great storm growing more violent every moment, and swirling round the austere cliffs of the Ungahoyerhorn.' The horror horn, as indeed it was to me. I want to hear all about it, I said. Every detail. Make a short story long, if it's short. I want to know why it's your horror horn. Well, Chanton and I, he was my guide, used to spend days prowling about the cliffs, making a little progress on one side, and then being stopped and gaining perhaps five hundred feet on another side, and then being confronted by some insuperable obstacle, till the day when by luck we found the route. Chanton never liked the job, for some reason that I could not fathom. It was not because of the difficulty or the danger of climbing, for he was the most fearless man I had ever met when dealing with rocks and ice. But he was always insistent that we should get off the mountain and back to the Blumen hut before sunset. He was scarcely easy even when we had got back to the shelter and locked and barred the door. And I well remember one night when, as we ate our supper, we heard some animal, a wolf probably, howling somewhere out in the night. A positive panic seized him, and I don't think he closed his eyes till morning. It struck me then that there might be some grisly legend about the mountain, connected possibly with its name, and next day I asked him why the peak was called the Horror Horn. He put the question off at first and said that, like Shrekhorn, its name was due to its precipices and falling stones. But when I pressed him further, he acknowledged that there was a legend about it, which his father had told him. There were creatures, so it was supposed, that lived in its caves, things human in shape and covered, except for the face and hands with long black hair. There were dwarfs in size, four feet high or thereabouts, but of prodigious strength and agility, remnants of some wild primeval race. It seemed that they were still in an upward stage of evolution, or so I guessed, for the story ran that sometimes girls had been carried off by them, not as prey, and not for any such fate as for those captured by cannibals, but to be bred from. Young men also had been raped by them to be mated with the females of their tribe. All this looked as if the creatures, as I said, were tending toward humanity. 
but naturally I did not believe a word of it, as applied to the conditions of the present day. Centuries ago, conceivably, there may have been such beings, and with the extraordinary tenacity of tradition, the news of this had been handed down and was still current round the hearths of the peasants. As for the numbers, Chanton told me that three had once been seen together by a man who, owing to his swiftness on skis, had escaped to tell the tale. This man, he averred, was no other than his grandfather, who had been benighted one winter evening as he passed through the dense woods below the Ungahoyerhorn, and Chanton supposed that they had been driven down to these lower altitudes in search of food during severe winter weather, for otherwise the recorded sights of them had always taken place among the rocks of the peak itself. They had pursued his grandfather, then a young man, at an extraordinarily swift canter, running sometimes upright as men run, sometimes on all fours in the manner of beasts, and their howls were just such as that we had heard that night in the Bloomin' Hut. Such at any rate was the story Chanton told me, and like you I regarded it as the very moonshine of superstition. But the very next day I had reason to reconsider my judgment about it. It was on that day that after a week of exploration we hit on the only route at present known to the top of our peak. We started as soon as there was light enough to climb by, for as you may have guessed, on the very difficult rocks it is impossible to climb by lantern or moonlight. We hit on the long fissure I have spoken of, we explored the ledge, which from below seemed to end in nothingness, and with an hour's step-cutting ascended the calor which led upwards from it. From there onwards it was a rock-climb, certainly of considerable difficulty, but with no heart-breaking discoveries ahead, and it was about nine in the morning that we stood on the top. We did not wait there long, for that side of the mountain is raked by falling stones loosened, when the sun grows hot from the ice that holds them, and we made haste to pass the ledge where the falls are most frequent. After that there was the long fissure to descend, a matter of no great difficulty, and we were at the end of our work by midday, both of us, as you may imagine, in the state of highest elation. A long and tiresome scramble among the huge boulders at the foot of the cliff then lay before us. Here the cliff side is very porous, and great caves extend far into the mountain. We had unroped at the base of the fissure, and were picking our way as seemed good to either of us among these fallen rocks, many of them bigger than an ordinary house, when on coming round the corner of one of these I saw that which made it clear that the stories Chanton had told me were no figment of traditional superstition. Not twenty yards in front of me lay one of the beings of which he had spoken. There it sprawled naked, and basking on its back with its face turned up to the sun, which its narrow eyes regarded unwinking. In form it was completely human, but the growth of hair that covered limbs and trunk alike almost completely hid the sun-tanned skin beneath. But its face, save for the down on its cheeks and chin, was hairless, and I looked on a countenance the sensual and malevolent bestiality of which froze me with horror. Had the creature been an animal, one would have felt scarcely a shudder at the gross animalism of it. The horror lay in the fact that it was a man. There lay by it a couple of gnawed bones, and its meal finished, it was lazily licking its protuberant lips, from which came a purring murmur of content. With one hand it scratched the thick hair on its belly, in the other it held one of these bones, which presently split in half beneath the pressure of its finger and thumb. But my horror was not based on the information of what happened to those men whom these creatures caught. 
It was due only to my proximity to a thing so human and so infernal. The peak of which the ascent had a moment ago filled us with such elated satisfaction became to me an ungehoir horn indeed, for it was the home of beings more awful than the delirium of nightmare could ever have conceived. Chanton was a dozen paces behind me, and with a backward wave of my hand I caused him to halt, then withdrawing myself with infinite precaution so as not to attract the gaze of that basking creature, I slipped back round the rock, whispering to him what I had seen, and with blanched faces we made a long detour, peering round every corner and crouching low, not knowing that at any step we might not come upon another of these beings, or that from the mouth of one of these caves in the mountainside there might not appear another of those hairless and dreadful faces, with perhaps this time the breasts and insignia of womanhood. That would have been the worst of all. Luck favored us, for we made our way among the boulders and shifting stones, the rattle of which might at any moment have betrayed us, without a repetition of my experience, and once among the trees we ran as if the furies themselves were in pursuit. Well now did I understand, though I dare say I cannot convey, the qualms of Chanton's mind when he spoke to me of these creatures. Their very humanity was what made them so terrible. The fact that they were of the same race as ourselves, but of a type so abysmally degraded that the most brutal and inhuman of men would have seemed angelic in comparison. The music of the small band was over before he had finished the narrative, and the chattering groups round the tea-table had dispersed. He paused a moment. There is a horror of the spirit, he said, which I experienced then from which I verily believe I have never entirely recovered. I saw then how terrible a living thing could be, and how terrible in consequence was life itself. In this all, I suppose, lurks some inherited germ of that ineffable bestiality. And who knows whether, sterile as it has apparently become in the course of centuries, it might not fructify again. When I saw that creature's son itself, I looked into the abyss out of which we have crawled and these creatures are trying to crawl out of it now, if they exist any longer. Certainly, for the last twenty years, there have been no record of their being seen until we come to this story of the footprint seen by the climbers on Everest. If that is authentic, if the party did not mistake the footprint of some bear or what not for a human tread, it seems as if still this bestranded remnant of mankind is in existence. Now Ingram had told his story well, but sitting in this warm and civilized room, the horror which he had clearly felt had not communicated itself to me in any very vivid manner. Intellectually, I agreed. I could appreciate his horror, but certainly my spirit felt no shudder of interior comprehension. But it is odd, I said, that your keen interest in physiology did not disperse your qualms. You were looking, so I take it, at some form of man more remote, probably, than the earliest human remains. Did not something inside you say, this is of absorbing significance? He shook his head. No, I only wanted to get away, said he. It was not, as I have told you, the terror of what according to Chanton's story might await us if we were captured. It was sheer horror at the creature itself. I quaked at it. The storm and the gale increased in violence that night, and I slept uneasily plucked again and again from slumber by the fierce battling of the wind that shook my windows as if with imperious demand for admittance. It came in billowy gusts, with strange noises intermingled with it, 
as for a moment it abated, with flutings and moanings that rose to shrieks as the fury of it returned. These noises, no doubt, mingled themselves with my drowsed and sleepy consciousness, and once I tore myself out of nightmare, imagining that the creatures of the horror horn had gained footing on my balcony and were rattling at the window bolts. But before morning the gale had died away, and I awoke to see the snow falling dense and fast in a windless air. For three days it continued, without intermission, and with its cessation there came a frost such as I have never felt before. Fifty degrees were registered one night, and more the next, and what the coal must have been on the cliffs of the Ungahoyerhorn, I cannot imagine. Sufficient, so I thought, to have made an end altogether of its secret inhabitants. My cousin, on that day twenty years ago, had missed an opportunity for such study, which would probably never fall again either to him or another. I received one morning a letter from a friend saying that he had arrived at the neighboring winter resort of St. Luigi and proposing that I should come over for a moment's skating and lunch afterwards. The place was not more than a couple of miles off. If one took the path over the low, pine-clad foothills above which lay the steep woods below the first rocky slopes of the Ungahoyerhorn, and accordingly, with a knapsack containing skates on my back, I went on skis over the wooded slopes and down by an easy descent again on to St. Luigi. The day was overcast. Clouds entirely obscured the higher peaks, though the sun was visible, pale and unluminous, through the mists. But as the morning went on, it gained the upper hand, and I slid down into St. Luigi beneath a sparkling firmament. We skated and lunched, and then, since it looked as if thick weather was coming up again, I set out early about three o'clock for my return journey. Hardly had I got into the woods when the clouds gathered thick above, and streamers and skines of them began to descend among the pines through which my path threaded its way. In ten minutes more their opacity had so increased that I could hardly see a couple of yards in front of me. Very soon I became aware that I must have got off the path, for snow-cowled shrubs lay directly in my way, and casting back to find it again, I got together confused as to direction. But though progress was difficult, I knew I had only to keep on the ascent, and presently I should come to the brow of these low foothills and descend into the open valley where Alhubil stood. So on I went, stumbling and sliding over obstacles, and unable, owing to the thickness of the snow, to take off my skis, for I should have sunk over the knees at each step. Still the ascent continued, and looking at my watch I saw that I had already been near an hour on my way from St. Luigi, a period more than sufficient to complete my whole journey. But still I stuck to my idea that, though I had certainly strayed from my proper route a few minutes more, must surely see me over the top of the upward way and I should find the ground declining into the next valley. About now, too, I noticed that the mists were growing suffused with rose color, and though the inference was that it must be close on sunset, there was consolation in the fact that they were there, and might lift at any moment and disclose to me my whereabouts. But the fact that night would soon be on me made it needful to bar my mind against that despair of loneliness, which so eats out the heart of a man who is lost in woods or on mountainside, that though still there is plenty of vigor in his limbs, his nervous force is sapped, and he can do no more than lie down and abandon himself to whatever fate may await him. And then I heard that which made the thought of loneliness seem bliss indeed, for there was a worse fate than loneliness. What I heard resembled the howl of a wolf, and it came from not far in front of me where the ridge—was it a ridge?—still rose higher in vestment of pines. 
From behind me came a sudden puff of wind, which shook the frozen snow from the drooping pine branches, and swept away the mist as a broom sweeps the dust from the floor. Radiant above me were the unclouded skies already charged with the red of the sunset, and in front I saw that I had come to the very edge of the wood through which I had wandered so long. But it was no valley into which I had penetrated, for there right ahead of me rose the steep slope of boulders and rocks soaring upwards to the foot of the Ungahoyerhorn. What then was that cry of a wolf which had made my heart stand still? I saw. Not twenty yards from me was a fallen tree, and leaning against the trunk of it was one of the denizens of the horror horn, and it was a woman. She was enveloped in a thick growth of hair, gray and tufted, and from her head it streamed down over her shoulders and her bosom, from which hung withered and pendulous breasts. And looking on her face, I comprehended not with my mind alone, but with a shudder of my spirit, what Ingram had felt. Never had nightmare fashioned so terrible a countenance. The beauty of sun and stars, and of the beasts of the field, and the kindly race of men, could not atone for so hellish an incarnation of the spirit of life. A fathomless bestiality modeled the slavering mouth and narrow eyes. I looked into the abyss itself, and knew that out of that abyss, on the edge of which I leaned the generations of men, had climbed. What if that ledge crumbled in front of me and pitched me headlong into its nethermost depths? In one hand she held by the horns a chamois that kicked and struggled. A blow from its hind leg caught her withered thigh, and with a grunt of anger she seized the leg in her other hand. And as a man may pull from its sheath a stem of meadow grass, she plucked it off the body leaving the torn skin hanging round the gaping wound. Then putting the red, bleeding member to her mouth, she sucked at it as a child sucks a stick of sweetmeat. Through flesh and gristle, her short brown teeth penetrated, and she licked her lips with a sound of purring. Then dropping the leg by her side, she looked again at the body of the prey now quivering in its death convulsion, and with finger and thumb gouged out one of its eyes. She snapped her teeth on it, and it cracked like a soft-shelled nut. It must have been but a few seconds that I stood watching her, in some indescribable catalepsy of terror, while through my brain there pealed the panic command of my mind to my stricken limbs. Begone, begone, while there is time. Then recovering the power of my joints and muscles, I tried to slip behind a tree and hide myself from this apparition. But the woman, shall I say, must have caught my stir of movement, for she raised her eyes from her living feast and saw me. She craned forward her neck. She dropped her prey, and half rising, began to move towards me. As she did this, she opened her mouth and gave forth a howl such as I had heard a moment before. It was answered by another, but faintly and distantly. Sliding and slipping, with the toes of my skis tripping in the obstacles below the snow, I plunged forward down the hill between the pine trunks. The low sun already sinking behind some rampart of mountain in the west reddened the snow and pines with its ultimate rays. My knapsack, with the skates in it, swung to and fro on my back. One ski-stick had already been twitched out of my hand by a fallen branch of pine, but not a second's pause could I allow myself to recover it. I gave no glance behind, and I knew not what pace my pursuer was on my track, or indeed whether any pursued at all, for my whole mind and energy now working at full power again under the stress of my panic was devoted to getting away down the hill and out of the wood as swiftly as my limbs could bear me. 
For a little while I heard nothing but the hissing snow of my headlong passage, and the rustle of the covered undergrowth beneath my feet. And then, from close at hand behind me once more, the wolf howl sounded, and I heard the plunging of footsteps other than my own. The strap of my knapsack had shifted, and as my skates swung to and fro on my back, it chafed and pressed on my throat, hindering free passage of air, of which, God knew, my laboring lungs were in dire need. And without pausing, I slipped it free from my neck and held it in the hand from which my ski stick had been jerked. I seemed to go a little more easily for this adjustment, and now, not so far distant, I could see below me the path from which I had strayed. If only I could reach that, the smoother going would surely enable me to outdistance my pursuer, who, even on the rougher ground, was but slowly overhauling me. And at the sight of that ribbon stretch, unimpeded downhill, a ray of hope pierced the black panic of my soul. With that came the desire, keen and insistent, to see who or what it was that was on my tracks and I spared a backward glance. It was she, the hag whom I had seen at her gruesome meal. Her long gray hair flew out behind her, her mouth chattered and gibbered. Her fingers made grabbing movements, as if already they closed on me. But the path was now at hand, and the nearness of it, I suppose, made me incautious. A hump of snow-covered bush lay in my path, and thinking I could jump over it, I tripped and fell, smothering myself in snow. I heard a maniac noise, half scream, half laugh from close behind, and before I could recover myself, the grabbing fingers were at my neck as if a steel vice had closed there. But my ring hand, in which I held my knapsack of skates, was free, and with a blind, backhanded movement, I whirled it behind me at the full length of its strap, and knew that my desperate blow had found its billet somewhere. Even before I could look around, I felt the grip on my neck relax, and something subsided into the very bush which had entangled me. I recovered my feet and turned. There she lay, twitching and quivering. The heel of one of my skates, piercing the thin alpaca of the knapsack, had hit her full on the temple, from which the blood was pouring. But a hundred yards away I could see another such figure, coming downwards on my tracks, leaping and bounding. At that panic rose again within me, and I sped off down the white, smooth path that led to the lights of the village already beckoning. Never once did I pause in my headlong going, there was no safety until I was back among the haunts of men. I flung myself against the door of the hotel and screamed for admittance, though I had but to turn the handle and enter. And once more, as when Ingram had told his tale, there was the sound of the band and the chatter of voices, and there, too, was he himself who looked up and then rose swiftly to his feet as I made my clattering entrance. "'I had seen them, too!' I cried. "'Look at my knapsack! Is there not blood on it?' It is the blood of one of them, a woman, a hag, who tore off the leg of a chamois. I looked, and pursued me through the accursed wood. I, Whether it was I who spun around, or the room which seemed to spin round me, I knew not, but I heard myself falling, collapsed on the floor. And the next time that I was conscious at all, I was in bed. There was Ingram there, who told me that I was quite safe, and another man, a stranger, who pricked my arm with the nozzle of a syringe and reassured me. A day or two later I gave a coherent account of my adventure, and three or four men armed with guns went over my traces. They found the bush in which I had stumbled with a pool of blood which had soaked into the snow. And still following my ski tracks, they came on the body of a chamois from which had been torn one of its hind legs, and one eye socket was empty. That is all the corroboration of my story that I can give the reader, and for myself I imagine that the creature which pursued me was either not killed by my blow, or that her fellows removed her body. Anyhow, it is open to the incredulous to prowl about the caves of the Ungahoyerhorn and see if anything occurs that may convince them.
End of The Horror Horn by E.F. Benson. The Invisible Monster by Sonia H. Green From Weird Tales, November 1923 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman A Short Tale of Horror The Invisible Monster by Sonia H. Green I have never heard an even approximately adequate explanation of the horror at Martin's Beach. Despite the large number of witnesses, no two accounts agree, and the testimony taken by local authorities contains the most amazing discrepancies. Perhaps this haziness is natural in view of the unheard-of character of the horror itself, the almost paralytic terror of all who saw it, and the efforts made by the fashionable wave crest in to hush it up after the publicity created by Professor Alton's article are hypnotic powers confined to recognized humanity. Against all these obstacles I am striving to present a coherent version, for I beheld the hideous occurrence and believe it should be known in view of the appalling possibilities it suggests martin's beach is once more popular as a watering place but i shudder when i think of it indeed i cannot look at the ocean at all now without shuddering fate is not always without a sense of drama and climax hence the terrible happening of august eighth nineteen twenty two swiftly followed a period of minor and agreeable wonder-fraught excitement at martin's beach on may seventeenth the crew of the fishing smack alma of gloucester under captain james p orney killed after a battle of nearly forty hours a marine monster whose size and aspect produced the greatest possible stir in scientific circles and caused certain boston naturalists to take every precaution for its taxidermical preservation the object was some fifty feet in length of roughly cylindrical shape and about ten feet in diameter it was unmistakably a gilled fish in its major affiliations but with certain curious modifications such as rudimentary forelegs and six-toed feet in place of the pectoral fins which prompted the widest speculation its extraordinary mouth its thick and scaly hide and its single deep-set eye were wonders scarcely less remarkable than its colossal dimensions and when the naturalist pronounced it an infant organism which could not have been hatched more than a few days public interest mounted to extraordinary heights captain orney with typical yankee shrewdness obtained a vessel large enough to hold the object in its hull and arranged for the exposition of his prize with judicious carpentry he prepared what amounted to an excellent marine museum and sailed south to the wealthy resort district of martin's beach anchored at the hotel wharf 
and reaped a harvest of admission fees the intrinsic marvelousness of the object and the importance which it clearly bore in the minds of many scientific visitors from near and far combined to make it the season's sensation that it was absolutely unique unique to a scientifically revolutionary degree was well understood the naturalists had shown plainly that it radically differed from the similar immense fish caught off the florida coast that while it was obviously an inhabitant of almost incredible depths perhaps thousands of feet its brain and principal organs indicated a development startlingly vast and out of all proportion to anything hither associated with the fish tribe on the morning of july twentieth the sensation was increased by the loss of the vessel and its strange treasure in the storm of the preceding night it had broken from its moorings and vanished forever from the sight of man carrying with it the guard who had slept aboard despite the threatening weather captain orney backed by extensive scientific interest and aided by large numbers of fishing boats from gloucester made a thorough and exhaustive search cruise but with no result other than the prompting of interest and conversation by august seven hope was abandoned and captain orney had returned to the wavecrest inn to wind up his business affairs with martin's beach and confer with certain of the scientific men who remained there the horror came on august eighth it was in the twilight when the gray seabirds hovered low near the shore and a rising moon began to make a glittering path across the waters the scene is important to remember for every impression counts on the beach were several strollers and a few late bathers stragglers from the distant cottage colony that rose modestly on a green hill to the north or from the adjacent cliff perched inn whose imposing towers proclaimed its allegiance to wealth and grandeur well within viewing distance was another set of spectators the loungers on the inn's high ceilinged and lantern-lighted veranda who appeared to be enjoying the dance music from the sumptuous ballroom inside these spectators who included captain orney and his group of scientific conferees joined the beach group before the horror progressed far as did many from the inn certainly there was no lack of witnesses confused though their stories be with fear and doubt of what they saw there is no exact record of the time the thing began although a majority say that the fairly round moon was about a foot above the low-lying vapors of the horizon they mentioned the moon because what they saw seemed subtly connected with it a sort of stealthy deliberate menacing ripple which rolled in from the far skyline along the shimmering lane of reflected moonbeams yet which seemed to subside before it reached the shore many did not notice this ripple until reminded by later events but it seemed to have been very marked differing in height and motion from the normal waves around it 
some called it cunning and calculating and as it died away craftily by the black wreaths far out there suddenly came belching up out of that glittered streaking brine a cry of death a scream of anguish and despair that moved pity even while it mocked it first to respond to the cry were the two lifeguards then on duty sturdy fellows in white bathing attire with their calling proclaimed in large red letters across their chests accustomed as they were to rescue work and to the screams of the drowning they could find nothing familiar in this unearthly ululation yet with a trained sense of duty they ignored the strangeness and proceeded to follow their usual course hastily seizing an air cushion which with its attached coil of rope lay always at hand one of them ran swiftly along the shore to the scene of the gathering crowd whence after whirling it about him to gain momentum he flung the hollow disc far out in the direction from which the sound had come as the cushion disappeared in the waves the crowd cautiously awaited a sight of the hapless being whose distress had been so great eager to see the rescue made by the massive rope but that rescue was soon acknowledged to be no swift and easy matter for pull as they might on the rope the two muscular guards could not move the object at the other end instead they found that object pulling with equal or even greater force in the very opposite direction until in a few seconds they were dragged off their feet and into the water by the strange power which had seized on the proffered life preserver one of them removing himself called immediately for help from the crowd on the shore to whom he flung the remaining coil of rope and in a moment the guards were seconded by all the hardy men among whom captain orney was foremost more than a dozen strong hands were now tugging desperately at the stout rope yet wholly without avail hard as they tugged the strange force at the other end tugged harder and since neither side relaxed for an instant the rope became rigid as steel with the enormous strain the struggling participants as well as the spectators were by this time consumed with curiosity as to the nature of the force in the sea the idea of a drowning man had long been dismissed and hints of whales submarines monsters and diamonds now passed freely around where humanity had first led the rescuers wonder kept them at their task and they hauled with a grim determination to uncover the mystery it being decided at last that a whale must have swallowed the air cushion captain orney was a natural leader shouting to those on shore that a boat must be obtained in order to approach harpoon and land the unseen leviathan several men at once prepared to scatter in quest of a suitable craft while others came to supplant the captain at the straining rope since his place was logically whatever boat party might be formed his own idea of the situation was very broad and by no means limited to whales 
since he had to do with a monster so much stranger he wondered what might be the acts and manifestations of an adult of the species of which the fifty-foot creature had been the merest infant and now there developed with appalling suddenness the crucial fact which changed the entire scene from one of wonder to one of horror and dazed with fright the assembled band of toilers and onlookers captain orney turning to leave his post at the rope found that his hands held in their place with unaccountable strength and in a moment he realized that he was unable to let go of the rope his plight was instantaneously divined and as each companion tested his own situation the same condition was encountered the fact could not be denied each struggler was irresistibly held in some mysterious bondage to the hempen line which was slowly hideously and relentlessly pulling them out to sea speechless horror ensued a horror in which the spectators were petrified to utter inaction and mental chaos their complete demoralization is reflected in the conflicting accounts they gave and the sheepish excuses they offered for their seemingly callous inertia i was one of them and no even the strugglers after a few frantic screams and futile groans succumbed to the paralyzing influence and kept silent and fatalistic in the face of unknown powers there they stood in the pallid moonlight blindly pulling against a spectred doom and swaying monotonously backward and forward as the water rose first to their knees then to their hips the moon was partly under a cloud and in the half-light the line of swaying men resembled some sinister and gigantic centipede writhing in the clutch of a terrible creeping death harder and harder grew the rope as the tug in each direction increased and the strands swelled with the undistinguished soaking of the rising waves slowly the tide advanced till the sands so lately peopled by laughing children and whispering lovers were now swallowed up by the inexorable flow the herd of panic-stricken watchers surged blindly backward as the water crept above their feet while the frightful line of strugglers swayed hideously on half submerged and now at a substantial distance from their audience silence was complete the crowd having gained a huddling place beyond the reach of the tide stared in mute fascination without offering a word of advice or encouragement or attempting any kind of assistance there was in the air a nightmare feeling of impending evils such as the world had never before known minutes seemed lengthened into hours and still that human snake of swaying torsos was seen above the fast-rising tide rhythmically it undulated slowly horribly with the seal of doom upon it thick clouds now passed over the ascending moon 
and the glittering path on the waters faded nearly out. Very dimly writhed the serpentine line of nodding heads, with now and then a livid face of a backward-glancing victim gleaming pale in the darkness. Faster and faster gathered the clouds, until at length their angry rifts shot down sharp tongues of febrile flame. Thunders rolled, softly at first, yet soon increasing to a deafening, maddening intensity. Then came the culminating crash, a shock whose reverberations seemed to shake land and sea alike. And on its heels, a cloudburst, whose drenching violence overpowered the darkened world, as if the heavens themselves had opened to pour forth a vindictive torrent. The spectators, instinctively acting despite the absence of conscious and coherent thought, now retreated up the cliff steps to the hotel veranda. Rumors had reached the guests inside, so that the refugees found a state of terror nearly equal to their own. I think a few frightened words were uttered, but cannot be sure. Some who were staying at the inn retired in terror to their rooms, while others remained to watch the fast-sinking victims as the line of bobbing heads showed above the mounting waves in the fitful lightning flashes. I recall thinking those heads, and the bulging eyes they must contain, eyes that might well reflect all the fright, panic, and delirium of a malignant universe, all the sorrow, sin, and misery, blasted hopes, unfulfilled desires, fear, loathing, and anguish, of the ages since time's beginning, eyes alight with all the soul-racking pain of eternal blazing infernos. And as I gazed out beyond the heads, my fancy conjured up still another eye, a single eye, equally alight, yet with a purpose so revolting to my brain that the vision soon passed. Held in the clutches of an unknown vice, the line of the damned dragged on, their silent screams and unuttered prayers known only to the demons of the black waves and the night wind. Then new burst from the infuriated sky such a mad cataclysm of satanic sound that even the former crash seemed dwarfed. Amid a blinding glare of descending fire, the voice of heaven resounded with the blasphemies of hell, and the mingled agonies of all the lost reverberated in one apocalyptic, planet-rending peal of salopian din. It was the end of the storm, for with uncanny suddenness the rain ceased, and the moon once more cast her pallid beams on a strangely quieted sea. There was no more line of bobbing heads now. The waters were calm and deserted, and broken only by the fading ripples of what seemed to be a whirlpool far out in the path of the moonlight, whence the strange cry had first come. But as I looked along that treacherous line of silvery sheen, with fancy fervored and senses overwrought, 
there trickled upon my ear from some abysmal sunken waste the faint and sinister echoes of a laugh the end of the invisible monster by sonia h green the madman by herbert hipwell from weird tales june 1923 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. A Night of Horror at the Mortuary. The Madman by Herbert Hipwell. Peter Stubbs has snow white hair and he is only twenty eight. He mutters to himself as he pursues his lowly task of sweeping the streets in our little university town children jibe at him and goad him to rage and tears peter once had raven black hair and was a fine and strong young fellow as ever led the town forces in their frequent battles with our students that was before the one night he spent as caretaker of our medical school only two of us know the real story of that night and why peter was taken from the building the next morning a gibbering and white-haired idiot we have remained silent for various and selfish reasons but i can no longer keep to myself the story of that awful night our medical college is a lonely ramshackle old building the town has grown away from it it is surrounded by musty old junkyards and infrequently used railway sidings and it is miles from the fine old group of buildings which formed the rest of the university there has always been difficulty in getting a suitable caretaker for it none of the many engaged could be relied on to come early enough to get the fires going properly and to keep the walks clear of snow our new dean dr towney thought he could solve the problem by deciding to have the caretaker live permanently on the premises Peter Stubbs, on learning of this, applied for the post and had no difficulty in obtaining it. The dean showed him around the building and explained the duties required of him. A more imaginative man might have been a little chilled by the gaunt skeletons arranged in the cases of some of our classrooms. Certainly, he would not have been pleased with the sleeping quarters picked out for him the only room available was a closet-like place directly connected to our mortuary frequently bodies would be there overnight awaiting the purposes of the college most persons would not welcome these as nighttime neighbors but peter scoffed and said he would as soon sleep there as in the brightly lighted hotel chick channing and i heard his foolish boast and Chick and I had old scores to pay with Peter. His sturdy fist had left a blue circle around my eye for a week, and Chick was minus a tooth as a result of the hot encounter between Peter's followers and us. Chick jumped at this brilliant opening for reprisal. "'Are you game for a little ghost-walking?' he whispered to me, as Peter and the Dean passed to another part of the building. 
I ask for details. It's the chance of a lifetime if we have the nerve, he declared. Let's sneak back into the building tonight, crawl onto a couple of slabs in the mortuary, and cover ourselves with sheets. We'll look enough like corpses to fool Peter if he looks in. Then, when Peter goes to bed and it gets good and lonely, we can come to life with a few gentle moans, get Peter aroused, and then do a little ghost dancing for his benefit. After we have him frightened stiff, we can take off the sheets and give him the laugh. The story will get around quick enough, and poor Peter won't be troubling us freshies any more. I could sense trouble in the wild scheme, and I hastily began to offer. Peter knows there aren't any bodies in here now, I said. That's all right, Chick replied. I heard the dean tell him that a couple might arrive late today. In fact, I know there will be one here for certain. One of the inmates at the government hospital for the insane died today. The poor beggar was so wild they had to keep him locked up tight all the time. He had no friends, so the body is to come here, and the undertaker is already gone for it. I was still unconvinced but I had no plausible excuse. I felt my eye, which was still sore from Peter's bruising, and I assented to the crazy plan. Chick was right about the body. The undertaker's car drew up at the college just as we were leaving. We were the last students to go, and the dean was the only other person there. He asked our aid in bringing the body to the mortuary, and we laid it on the cold marble slab. Peter arrived for supper to begin his first night's stay, just as the dean and we were leaving. True to my promise, I met Chick near the college about ten o'clock, and we prepared to carry out our plan. My courage was oozing already. One of those yellow moons was the only light around the dreary building, and every rustle of a leaf or disturbed pebble began to send shivers up my spine but I couldn't turn back. Silently, we pried open one of the loosely locked basement windows. Then we crept up the dark stairs and through the classrooms, where I imagined I could see the skeletons standing out like white patches in the murky darkness. We reached the mortuary room and groped our way in. I almost cried out as my hand suddenly came in contact with the dead maniac, but I recovered myself. Chick groped in the corners until he found two immense white sheets. We climbed out on adjacent slabs and stretched out on our backs and pulled the coverings over us. I managed to keep a small corner raised so that I had a partial view of the room as my eyes grew accustomed to the darkness. The stillness grew intense. We heard the long, dreary hoot of a freight engine. I shivered involuntarily and thought of the real corpse a few feet away. Footsteps echoed in the building. Peter was making a round of inspection before retiring. He switched on the lights in the mortuary and gave a little whistle of surprise at the three still white figures lying there. Then he began to whistle again, a little tremulously. Evidently he was not feeling as bold as when he had accepted his post. He went to his little room 
but was soon back again in his hand he held a small coil of rope apparently a clothesline he unwound it and then very gingerly he approached the slab on which i lay i felt a light blow as one end of the rope fell across me peter was going to take no chances on midnight ghosts he was going to tie us all firmly to the slabs whistling to keep up his courage he proceeded with his task in a few minutes i was firmly bound i could not have moved if i dared then he cut away the remaining piece of rope and proceeded to truss up chick in the same way he had to struggle to make the two ends of the cord meet there was none left for the real corpse and though he hunted diligently in all parts of the room he could find no more he surveyed the two of us bound firmly to the slabs and evidently felt reassured he decided to take a chance on the third body remaining still and retired to his room closing the door and leaving us alone in the creepy moonlit mortuary how i cursed chick as i lay there unable to move listening to the gradually deepening breathing of peter as he dropped into sound sleep what if he should leave us bound until the professors arrived in the morning a fine row that would be these and other unpleasant thoughts running through my mind were suddenly checked by a slight sound which turned me cold from head to foot horrified i gazed through the small chink in my covering i could not believe my eyes the corpse of the maniac had moved there came a faint rustle of his covering shroud and the body moved again ever so slightly i wanted to shriek in terror but i was paralyzed the shroud moved again this time more noticeably my scalp tightened and i could feel the goose flesh rising all over my body then with one sudden motion the maniac sat bolt upright and threw the shroud from him he was clothed only in a long hospital nightgown his thin hair stood up in tangled wisps and his eyes blazed like those of a cat in a dark room slowly he surveyed his surroundings and then burst into the most hideous laughter i have ever heard his big yellow teeth seemed like the fangs of a wild animal i could imagine them rending my flesh the echo of his hideous mirth had hardly died away when peter burst from his room clad in his nightclothes his knees almost gave way as he took in the dreadful scene horror was apparent in every line of his body and i had an inexplicable desire to laugh but by a supreme effort i fought off this hysteria quite calmly the madman swung his legs down from the slab and sat there on its edge transfixing poor peter with his terrible gaze he chuckled peter commenced to back toward his room in an instant the madman was at him then commenced a wild chase around the room of which i could only catch fleeting glimpses as they passed on one side of my slab once the maniac rested bony hands on my body as he prepared for a new rush at peter whom i could hear breathing nearby 
bound hand and foot chick and i were unable to make a move even if terror had not prevented us untiringly cunningly the madman pursued his prey peter dodged and squirmed in terror perspiration poured from his face but his efforts were futile he was pinned in a corner at last where a door led directly to a stairway in the corridor step by step the madman approached him his long fingers outstretched like talons and a low gleeful laughter coming from his lips peter backed desperately away from him as though he hoped to press through the great oaken door the maniac's fingers were almost at his throat when the door swung back suddenly and peter tumbled from the room his body bumping and thudding on the stairs outside startled by the sudden disappearance of his victim the madman halted a moment the door automatically swung shut again firmly this time apparently it had not been tightly closed before the insane creature flung himself at it it repelled him he shrieked and tore at it but to no avail and he finally turned away his eyes now wider than ever swept the room they rested on our bound figures swiftly he passed over to where i lay the rope puzzled him and he was still for a moment suddenly he grasped it and snapped it as though it had been thread i was free but i did not move i waited for him to seize me but his footsteps shuffled away he was beside chick now i heard the rope which bound him snap in desperation i rolled from the slab and rose trembling to my feet the noise attracted the crazed being he turned and faced me his features were distorted into a horrible grin his sharp cruel teeth gnashed as if in expectation of a bloody feast he leapt at me clearing the slab on which i had lain at one bound i was too weak to dodge but i tried grimly to clinch with him as i had seen groggy boxers do when they were sparring for time i was in his arms his eyes blazed not a foot from mine foam flecked his mouth his weight pressed against me it grew heavier and heavier then my overwrought nerves gave way and i became unconscious when i awoke i was outside in the cool night air chick was bathing my brow with muddy water from a roadside pool the madman had collapsed at the same moment i had in a daze chick had laid him again on the slab and had dragged me from the building poor peter we forgot until he was found the next morning haggard white-haired and unable to utter an intelligible word too vivid an imagination wrought into a frenzy by the uncanny surroundings was the way the doctors diagnosed his strange case chick and i were too dazed to shatter the theory as for the madman he had really died after a short spell of suspended animation and a temporary revival 
I know this because his gaunt skeleton was one of the principal decorations at our graduation dance but even with this assurance I sometimes wake up at night in a cold sweat and feel for the butt of the revolver under my pillow the end of the madman by Herbert Hipwell the masters from beyond by Edward Podolsky from weird tales September 1925 this is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org read by Dale Grothman what dread fate took the crew and passengers of this mystery ship in the Pacific the masters from beyond by Edward Podolsky anyone in Gloucester can recall the Caroline the mystery ship as she was later called the day had been calm and beautiful in the late forenoon a strange craft drifted silently almost like a ghost into port and ran ashore her sail was set and rudder lashed against her stern captain musgrave from the first had become impressed with the feeling that there was something queer about her so he summoned his two old cronies lawyer mckay and dr underhill and these three boarded the ship dreadfully quiet murmured the captain in the course of the inspection something indefinably queer the whole ship seems saturated with mystery affirmed lawyer mckay nowhere was anyone to be seen two chairs had remained undisturbed on deck in the cabin the table was set for a meal the beds had been made up silken dresses hung in the wardrobes everything was left untouched nowhere were there any signs of violence or struggle what has become of the crew and the passengers asked captain musgrave presently dr underhill returned bearing in his hand a thick copy-book this may enlighten us a bit he said to his friends the ship's log queried the captain most eagerly no evidently more important I found this in the captain's cabin, and it bears quite a lurid title. Last Days in a Lifeless World, and also a subtitle, The Masters from Beyond. The most amazing document that had ever been written was that one discovered by Dr. Underhill in the captain's cabin. This manuscript seems to have been guarded with more than jealous care by these three old men and it was only after the death of the last of them captain musgrave that the manuscript finally passed into the hands of one who has seen fit to put it before the general public the manuscript the day dies slowly almost with a gasp it seems soon night will come a dreadful night of a lifeless world a yawning void 
the moon already appears in the gray heavens like a brazen ball tarnished and grinning through the depressive haze i alone am left out of the passengers and crew that numbered a hundred alone in a soundless and colorless world i appear to be moving in an abode of spirits as if in a vision i neither feel nor hear nor perceive the slightest sensation i but see and only through my sight am i aware of the dreadful sickness the depressive calm that envelops all everywhere we set sail from san francisco on a trip to the philippines june twentieth eighteen ninety eight the weather was propitious and for several days nothing went amiss on the sixth day a tempest arose and we were driven many miles off our course when the storm had subsided which was as suddenly as it had come we found ourselves in strange waters the sky seemed to have taken on a new aspect the waters were calm not a ripple disturbed the sea as far as the eye could see a depressive calm was about us it seemed to be rising from the very sea itself the air was suffused with a sticky jaundiced yellowness the sun hung low in the sky enormous and leering with a calm fierceness does it strike you that we look small almost fearfully small lawton spoke these words to me i had noticed from the beginning the awful expanse of sea and space about us the bigness of it all was stupendous overwhelming we lived for three lifeless days and nights in a lifeless world we seemed to move like ghosts in spirit land an awful monotony sank into our souls and became part of us on the fourth day terror came upon us a disappearance was reported from among the passengers mr clarkle has gone sir gone how disappeared sir mr lawton says he is coming up to see you presently well lawton i greeted my friend how it's come gannert we're done for i gazed at him amazed and then startled what's come lawton i finally found the words to ask it's one of these masters from beyond that's a name as good as any you know how clarkle disappeared he was fished up vanished right before our eyes ward mcgregor and i were speaking to him and he was snatched up from the very midst of us now you're talking nonsense i said with an attempt at a chuckle this ungodly atmosphere is getting on our nerves from a four came a startled cry then a sudden silence later kirk was described to have vanished under the same circumstances that had surrounded the disappearance of clarkle i was stumped puzzled i retired to my cabin and flung myself upon the bed i dozed off and now and then i imagined i heard startled cries moans 
then silence i fell asleep i must have slept for some time for when i awoke the moon hung in the eternally gray heavens always that same moon painted in faint blood and grinning the depressiveness seemed to have increased the calm the lifelessness seemed to have become greater at the door i met lawton he had a strange wistful look in his eyes how are you gunnert he said i returned his greeting there's no one on the ship he continued no one on the ship what's become of them jumped overboard lawton looked steadily at me for a space no he answered they've disappeared gone vanished much the same as clarkle and kirk then for the first time in that senseless silly world i became afraid we're mad lawton both of us the very atmosphere is saturated with madness a strange unreality lawton assented silently we're the only ones left and we'll make the best of the situation we went on deck and sat down to talk gernert said lawton in the course of our conversation our fate will be much the same as that of the marie celeste the marie celeste i broke in yes the captain and his family and the crew disappeared quite suddenly and mysteriously out at sea and the ship drifted back as mute testimony to an occurrence which seemed beyond credence how do you account for the disappearance in the same manner that i account for the disappearance of our crew and passengers this super race from somewhere in space masters as i call them from beyond we're owned gernert owned by someone something superior to us something or things with superior intelligence inhabitants of some distant world who quite easily come down to earth as we can descend to the bottom of the sea we may be of value to them as food perhaps as fish are to us and have there been any signs any proof of such a race of superhuman beings as you call them i asked a little impressed with his yarn lawton hesitated for a few seconds and then resumed with the same zest that had characterized his talk before of course he said there have been proofs both visible and invisible of the latter i recall the curious case of mrs charton at sutton courthouse sutton lane cheswick in whose home windows mysteriously broke the mansion was detached and surrounded by high walls no other building was near it the police were called the constables assisted by members of the household guarded the house but the windows continued to be broken both in front and behind the house a still more impressive visitation from those strangers from beyond was told to me by an old tar at midnight february twenty fourth eighteen eighty five latitude thirty seven north and longitude one seventy east 
somewhere between Yokohama and Victoria, the captain of the Bark Inswitch was aroused by his mate, who had seen something unusual in the sky. The captain went on deck and saw the sky turning fiery red. All at once a large mass of fire appeared over the vessel, completely blinding the spectators. The fiery mass fell into the sea. The bark was struck flat aback, and a roaring white sea passed ahead. Then again, Captain Bayer of the Dutch steamer Valentian was in the South China Sea when at midnight he saw a rotation of flashes. It looked like a horizontal wheel turning rapidly, and it was above water, perhaps the wheel of a vessel of the super race from beyond. At another time, two wheels of fire were seen, which the men described as rolling millstones of fire. What I want is positive proofs, I cried out in exasperation. Proofs that these masters from beyond have been upon the earth. You shall have them, Lawton quickly answered. A convincing proof of these super-beings is their footprints. Some thirty years ago at Devonshire, footprints were discovered in the snow. They were clawed footprints, of an unclassifiable form alternating at huge but regular intervals with what seemed to be the impression of a point of a stick. But the scattering of the prints was over an amazing expanse of territory. Obstacles, such as hedges, walls, houses, were surmounted. There was intense excitement. The track was followed by huntsmen and hounds, until they came to the forest, from which the hounds retreated baying and terrified nobody dared to enter the forest then again a considerable sensation was caused in the town of topsham limpstone exmouth teagmouth and dawlish in devonshire by a vast number of foot tracks of a most strange and mysterious description these marks were generally eight inches in advance of each other the impressions were cones in incomplete or concentric basins. The footprints looked as if branded with a hot iron. Also in Scotland, among the high mountains where Glenock, Glenlyon, and Glenay are continuous, there have been met with several times during several winters the tracks of a creature never seen before. From the depth that the feet sank in the snow, the creature must have been considerable size. I may also cite instances of mysterious disappearances under the weirdest circumstances, which, for some reason or another, have been kept still. There is a village in North Russia where the three most prominent citizens were found in a forest beside the track of one of these super-things with their heads split open, as if pressure had been applied by two enormous fingers, one at the forehead, and the other at the back of the head. Their brains were missing, eaten out, it seemed, from their very heads. It seems, I jested grimly, that our brains are of some use after all. These masters from beyond, as you call them, are epicures of an advanced sort. Lawton was in no mood for jesting, 
In fact, his face seemed to me to have become a bit haggard and drawn. I tell you, Captain, his voice was almost a groan now, that we're owned by a race of super-creatures. I said nothing. I sat and simply stared at Lawton. Midnight was rapidly approaching, and with it a darkness, intense and frightful. The oppressive calm lay like a mantle over the lifeless sea. The grinning moon and the sickly stars were obscured by a fearful blackness. After a time the pitchy darkness was succeeded by a lurid gloom such as I have never seen. It seemed that the sky was afire, and the sea also. On every side the lurid gloom surrounded us. Lawton sat with his eyes staring into the fire-colored spaces. I found no word to break the awful monotony. I sat and stared at Lawton. Yet even as my gaze was concentrated upon him, a strange mist seemed to crawl around him. He grew thinner and thinner, and then with a snap he seemed to disappear upward. I know not whether to believe the testimony of my senses, or is it that my mind has also lost its grip? The ship is fastened in a motionless sea. I am the only living thing in a lifeless world. I know that if I should try to jump overboard, the sea would not receive me. It is green and full of sloth, and seems thick like jelly. The weariness of it all has entered my soul. I have no interest to... Here the document ends abruptly, and the fate of Captain Gannett, no doubt, was the fate of his crew and passengers. The end of The Masters from Beyond by Edward Podolsky Tell Tale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. This is a LibRox recording. All LibRox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibRox.org. True, nervous, very, very dreadful. Nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all the things in heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Objects, there was none. Passion, there was none. I love the old man. He has never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye. With a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man. And thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. 
Madman, no, nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation. I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinge creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers of my sagacity. I would scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there I was opening the door little by little, and he had not even to dream of my secret dreads or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea and perhaps he heard me for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled now you may think that i drew back but no his room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness for the shutters were closed fastened through fears of robbers and so i knew that he could not see the opening of the door and i kept pushing it on steadily steadily i had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the thin fastening, and the old man sprung up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quiet, still, and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening just as I have done, night after night, herking to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that detached me, I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him. Although I chuckled at heart, I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise. When he had turned in the bed, 
His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions. But he had found all in vain, all in vain because death in approaching him had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the piercing shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damp spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder. I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So am I. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minute longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it seized. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, 
He was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. Ha ha. When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect sovereignty as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest for their fatigues. While I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I talked cheerily, they chattered of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness. Until, at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt, I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently. But the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations. But the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to 
furry by the observation of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards, but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no. They heard, they suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. End of Telltale Heart. Vale of the Corbys by Arthur J. Burks From Weird Tales, November, 1925 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman Vale of the Corbys by Arthur J. Burks My Fear is an intangible fear, yet to me it is terribly real. Reason tells me that my experiences are but the fragments of realistic nightmares, while my inner consciousness tells me that what I have gone through has been something more than disordered imaging. I know in my mind that it has all been a dream, or a series of dreams. Yet. How can I explain to myself those strange red dots on my hands, my face, my neck? These are very real. They are not hallucinations, for such of my friends as still come to see me at intervals have noted the dots and remarked upon their peculiar experience. This fact it is that is slowly but surely driving me to the very door of the insane asylum. Damn it, I know they have all been dreams. Yet dream creatures do not leave their marks upon the body of the dreamer. But I had best go back and tell it all from the beginning. I believe that from childhood I dreamed at intervals, widely spaced intervals, of a little secluded valley which had no location except in the recesses of my subconscious mind. It has always been a sunless valley, with a dark cloud hiding the sun. Miasmic mists have hung, like airy shrouds, in the still air above the valley's floor. There has been no breeze in this valley, nor anything that lived or moved. The air has been good, frightened with a musty kind of perfume, that has ever tantalized my sensitive nostrils. 
but it has always been air with a strange sort of chill to it that has ever caused me to waken shivering from my dream i have called the place a valley yet i do not know for sure that it is a valley since only my imagination has walled the valley in it is as though somewhere beyond the mists and the black cloud there were a circle of high hills which i cannot see just beyond the reach of my vision always in my dream i enter the valley through a narrow cleft in the walls of stone i know it is a cleft though i have never seen the walls for countless times have i believed that by putting forth my hands i could have touched the walls on either hand and i have always feared to put forth my hands lest they encounter nothingness and this knowledge of nothingness where i expected walls might cause my mind to collapse with thoughts of wide immensities or caverns bottomless on my right hand and on my left i prefer not to know the truth or to delude myself with the knowledge that there may be walls when possibly there are none at all straight through this cleft i go until my sensitive feelings tell me that i have entered the valley then begin my strange sensations first there is a terrible feeling of loneliness a feeling of great space all around me a sense of surrounding desolation which my eyes cannot see and over all a silence that is heavy as a giant's cloak upon the shoulders of a mere boy there is an inevitable chill in the air which causes me to shiver even though as is sometimes the case when i have dreamed of entering the valley swiftly with much exertion my body is bathed in perspiration quietly lest i disturb the eerie atmosphere of the place i seat myself cross-legged upon the ground and almost at once a queer noise begins to be heard always until a few weeks ago the noises have been the same never varying from dream to dream which during the passing of the years have occurred so frequently that the dreams seem to blend into one long nightmare that has no end what are the noises they are the beating beating in the air about me of silken invisible wings yet until a few weeks ago i had never seen the creatures whose wings i had heard out of the misty distance they come those wings that whir in the air those creatures that always swerve and dart hither and yon ever just far enough within the mist that i cannot see the creatures themselves when i remember hearing the wings for the first time i am sure there was but one pair of them out of the mist they came whirring and i heard them slap smartly as a creature who travelled upon them sensing my presence perhaps strayed its flight and darted back into the fog only to return a few seconds later slapping its wings together smartly ere it darted back and was lost when the dream came again and this second time i was several months older it was repeated in all its details as i outlined them above except that now 
there were two creatures instead of one. Distinctly, while I held my breath to listen, came the whirring of two pair of wings. Still, the creatures were invisible, though I knew from the sound that they were probably identical in shape and kind. Out of the fog they would come, whirring, pausing while their wings built a startled tattoo in the mist as their flight was stayed. For a number of times, whose exact count I have long since forgotten, the dream was repeated at intervals, which, as I grew older, came closer and closer together. The details never varied except in one particular. The beating of the wings was greater in volume with each succeeding occurrence of the nightmare. First there had been one pair of wings, then two, then four, ever increasing in numbers until the air about me, even beyond my vision, was alive with invisible creatures whose wings whipped the air, causing the fog to swirl eerily, creating a medley of noise that became, shortly, a continual sound of beating wings, as though the creatures were advancing from the mists in companies and battalions, in regiments and brigades. One group would rush upon me and retire, only to give place to another group, which charged me, only to retreat. How many minutes, hours, or days I remained in the valley with its unseen walls I have no way of computing. But this I know well, after the first time or two, the sound of wings beating never paused, from my entry to the valley until the dream ceased and I awoke in my bed beneath the eaves at home, with cold perspiration bathing my body clamily. And here is another weird circumstance, even though I know in my dream that it is a dream, even though I know as I travel through the cleft what I shall experience when I have reached the valley at last, I am never able to cause myself to waken, nor am I able to cause the dream to change until it has gone through to its usual conclusion. As I traverse the cleft, I try to stay my steps, try to face about and return, but find myself powerless to do so. Always I must go on, until I have entered the valley and listened to the rustling and beating of the invisible wings. Is it any wonder I have come to fear the approach of nightfall? Is it any wonder that I watch the sun with dread as it slopes down the sky into the west? Is it any wonder that I walk the floors of my study until far into the night, fighting sleep, until from very weariness I cease to struggle and my eyes close of their own accord? Is it any wonder that a fever has entered my blood, crimsoning my cheeks, until I appear like a man far gone in consumption, until the flesh has shrunken on my face, so that, except for the roses of fever, my facial appearance is that of a cadaver. Too much worry and fear because of a tiresome nightmare, you say? A nightmare that comes because I fear it will come, and so fearing bring on the very dream that I dread? If it were only the beating of the wings. But many months have passed now since it was only the wings that frightened me. Months? 
Months, did I say? Months it is, yet it seems that whole years have passed. From one night when I dreamed, straining my eyes to make out the creatures whose wings I heard, I saw a black blotch against the misty wraiths of the valley, a blotch no bigger than a man's head. The blotch was black, I say, blacker even than the raven tresses of midnight. Just a glimpse it was, a glimpse that chilled me even as the dread coldness of the valley had never done. For there was a definite shape to the black blotch, a shape that spelled, to my disordered imagination, but one thing, that of a vampire bat with a death's head. I waited, my heart in my mouth, for the shape to show itself again. Shortly then I saw it and knew that the creature I saw was not the same which I had first glimpsed. The outline was the same, but there was an indefinable, unexplicable difference which told me that its second glimpse was a different creature, twin, perhaps, of the first. But why continue? Night after night it was the same, until, mingled with the never-ending whirr of silken wings, I stared, mute, with nameless fear, at the veritable wall of black, darting creatures, a wall that came toward me like a flood of blackness, like a sea of ebony smoke, a wall that was alive, that swirled and eddied, whirled and twisted, poured in, over and down upon itself, like heavy, opaque oil in ferment. Then came the other sound a raucous croaking which told me what manner of creature it was that showed such interest in me. These creatures were no bats, but birds of ebony blackness, birds that caused their wings to whir tirelessly, birds that increased with the speed of thought, birds that gave voice to raucous croakings that grated against the eardrums, as the rasping of a file grates against an exposed nerve. The birds were corbies. The birds were ravens. But did the knowledge ease the feeling of tension which, night by night, seemed to clasp me the tighter? No, no, no! Imagine it, if you can. Try mentally to experience it but once. Then multiply that experience by all the countless times that I, dreaming my ever-recurring dream, entered the vale of the Corbys and listened to the beating of their wings, to their perpetual croaking, and watched them writhe and twist in the air, so many in number that their evolutions made one think of a sea of plastic ebony. Do this, and you will know why I fight the descent of sleep as I would fight the temptations of Satan. Yet it is but a dream, after all. But is it? It is only two weeks ago now that, for the first time, I found myself unable to listen undisturbed to the beating wings of the Corbys, for, as they were emboldened, no doubt by my motionless attitude, the natural fear of me which creatures must have felt began to disappear. I knew it certainly when I noted that the black wall of the darting birds had approached closer to me on all sides, 
had approached so close that I could feel the breeze caused by the wings, could feel the coldness on my cheeks. Then I knew, with a sadness which had the force of some eerie inspiration, that the chill along my spine, which I had always experienced, had had a definite cause. And that cause is the antagonism which the Corbys felt toward me. Don't ask me why, for I do not know. Yet what happened afterward proves that I am correct in this surmise. From the very first, the Corbys of the Hidden Valley hated me, hated me with a hatred that nothing in the world could quell. Why, then, did they not, in all their countless numbers, overpower me like a resistless flood and smother me with the very weight of their numbers? Something held them back. Was it the antagonism which I instinctively fostered within myself as a weird sort of protection? Perhaps. Then could these creatures have been creatures of flesh and blood? Or is it only creatures of the astral world that can sense these emanations? Have I not insisted that this was nothing but a never-ending dream? But wait. Two nights later, when the wall approached quite too close, I could stand it no longer. With a cry of anger, a cry that was pregnant with fear and a nameless horror, I leapt to my feet and, for the first time, took active steps against the black creatures which were robbing me of what little reason I still possessed. I rushed pell-mell, my eyes closed tightly, into the thick of the wall of flying corbies, striking out on all sides with clenched fists. I felt my fists strike home in soft, feathery bodies, felt the bodies fall away from my hands. I gathered the creatures in the armfuls to my breast, crushing out their little lives against my own body, and fiercely gloated in my power to do them injury. But what were those little stabs of pain which I felt on my exposed hands, my face, my neck? I felt them, but at the time did not realize their significance. Finally, exhausted from my battle against these terrific, somehow intangible odds, I fell back from the fight and sank again to the ground. But, fast between my two palms, I held a single one of the ebony ravens. He was still alive, and his little eyes seemed to stare into my own, with an expression of saturnine, undying hatred, as though he dared me to hurt him. For many minutes I looked into the eyes of the weak, defenseless bird. Unblinking, he stared back at me, unafraid. Slowly his mouth opened, as though he sneered at me. Still, with his eyes staring into mine, the raven ducked its head, suddenly, and drove its pointed bill deep into the flesh of my hand. The blood spurted from the wound. Then I knew the meaning of those stabs of pain I had felt when I fought against the vanguard of the corbies. The other birds, too, had driven their sharp bills into my flesh. I stared wonderingly at my hands, my attention drawn more closely because the bird between my palms had pierced the flesh, and as I saw the countless punctures, 
I knew that what I had thought to be perspiration bathing my cheeks was not perspiration, but blood, which the ravens had drawn. What did I do then? Deliberately, not knowing why, just as a small boy does not know why he takes pleasure in being cruel to animals, I looked back at the bird and into its challenging eyes. Then, holding it fast in one hand, with the other I slowly twisted the ebony head from the creature's shoulders and hurled it into the mist. The little body in my hand did not quiver, did not move once after I had cast the head free. But when I had hurled the body after the head, it suddenly seemed to come to life, jumping here and there as does any bird which has been beheaded. Then, upright on its two feet, it darted into the fog. But before it had entirely disappeared, I saw it take wing and rise into the air. My God, what ghastly croaking! then came from the billows upon billows of corbies, which still circled about me. I pressed my hands to my ears to prevent my eardrums from bursting. Then, when I could stand no more, I leapt to my feet and started back the way I had come, while the ravens followed behind me, raucously croaking their wordless anger. I felt them on my shoulders and on my head, I felt them about my legs, retarding my retreat. I felt the slap of their wings against my unprotected cheeks and face, felt the sharp stabs of pain in my flesh as their savage bills were plunged home, and awoke in my bed at home with perspiration beating my body. It was perspiration, too, not blood. But on my hands, face, and neck, there were many, many little red dots, dots which might have been tiny wounds that had healed, leaving fierce welts where the open wounds had been. This, then, is why I fear sleep. When I sleep, I dream, and when I dream, I dream of the Vale of Corbys, and I know that sooner or later the ravens will slay me. Yet a man cannot fight sleep forever, though for over a week I have not closed my eyes. I have imbibed strong coffee, fiery hot, and black as the wings of the ravens. I have used many kinds of drugs, increasing the doses swiftly until I use more than any confirmed fiend that ever lived. Yet I feel myself growing weaker, hour by hour, and know that soon I must sleep. And when I do, I, Hans Goodman, brother of the man who wrote the above manuscript, must finish the story, for my brother is dead. What he saw beyond the veil of sleep I do not know. Assuredly, I do not believe all of what he has written above, because I know that it was written in a fevered frenzy was born of a mind that had been crazed by drugs and loss of sleep. Call it an insane obsession, if you like. But I found my brother dead in a chair in his study, his body literally covered with the blood which oozed from countless little wounds in his flesh. Flesh that, 
between the wounds was red with the rose of fever or red because it had been beaten and pounded by something that was still not powerful enough to break the skin and who shall say that whirring wings did not paint those roses there whirring wings that beat an endless tattoo the end of the veil vale of corby's by arthur j burks the village bully by joseph sheridan lafonu this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schempf. The Village Bully by Joseph Sheridan Lafonu. About thirty years ago, there lived in the town of Chapelizod an ill conditioned fellow of Herculean strength, well known throughout the neighborhood by the title of Bully Larkin. In addition to his remarkable physical superiority, this fellow had acquired a degree of skill as a pugilist which alone would have made him formidable as it was he was the autocrat of the village and carried not the sceptre in vain conscious of his superiority and perfectly secure of impunity he lorded it over his fellows in a spirit of cowardly and brutal insolence which made him hated even more profoundly than he was feared upon more than one occasion he had deliberately forced quarrels upon men whom he had singled out for the exhibition of his savage prowess and in every encounter his overmatched antagonist had received an amount of punishment which edified and appalled the spectators and in some instances left ineffaceable scars and lasting injuries after it bully larkin's pluck had never been fairly tried for owing to his prodigious superiority in weight strength and skill his victories had always been certain and easy and in proportion to the facility with which he uniformly smashed an antagonist his pugnacity and insolence were inflamed he thus became an odious nuisance in the neighbourhood and the terror of every mother who had a son and of every wife who had a husband who possessed a spirit to resent insult or the smallest confidence in his own pugilistic capabilities now it happened that there was a young fellow named ned moran better known by the sobriquet of long ned from his slender lathy proportions at that time living in the town he was in truth a mere lad nineteen years of age and fully twelve years younger than the stalwart bully this however as the reader will see secured for him no exemption from the dastardly provocations of the ill-conditioned pugilist long ned in an evil hour had thrown eyes of affection upon a certain buxom damsel who notwithstanding bully larkin's amorous rivalry inclined to reciprocate them i need not say how easily the spark of jealousy once kindled is blown into a flame and how naturally in a coarse and ungoverned nature it explodes in acts of violence and outrage the bully watched his opportunity and contrived to provoke ned moran while drinking in a public-house with a party of friends into an altercation 
in the course of which he failed not to put such insults upon his rival as manhood could not tolerate long ned though a simple good-natured sort of fellow was by no means deficient in spirit and retorted in a tone of defiance which edified the more timid and gave his opponent the opportunity he secretly coveted bully larkin challenged the heroic youth whose pretty face he had privately consigned to the mangling and bloody discipline he was himself so capable of administering the quarrel which he had himself contrived to get up to a certain degree covered the ill-blood and malignant premeditation which inspired his proceedings and long ned being full of generous ire and whisky punch accepted the gauge of battle on the instant the whole party accompanied by a mob of idle men and boys and in short by all who could snatch a moment from the calls of business proceeded in slow procession through the old gate into the phoenix park and mounting the hill overlooking the town selected near its summit a level spot on which to decide the quarrel the combatants stripped and a child might have seen in the contrast presented by the slight lank form and limbs of the lad and the muscular and massive build of his veteran antagonist how desperate was the chance of poor ned moran seconds and bottle-holders selected of course for their love of the game were appointed and the fight commenced i will not shock my readers with a description of the cool-blooded butchery that followed the result of the combat was what anybody might have predicted at the eleventh round poor ned refused to give in the brawny pugilist unhurt in good wind and pale with concentrated and as yet unslaked revenge had the gratification of seeing his opponent seated upon his second's knee unable to hold up his head his left arm disabled his face a bloody swollen and shapeless mass his breast scarred and bloody and his whole body panting and quivering with rage and exhaustion give in ned my boy cried more than one of the bystanders never never he shrieked with a voice hoarse and choking time being up his second placed him on his feet again blinded with his own blood panting and staggering he presented but a helpless mark for the blows of his stalwart opponent it was plain that a touch would have been sufficient to throw him to the earth but larkin had no notion of letting him off so easily he closed with him without striking a blow the effect of which prematurely dealt would have been to bring him at once to the ground and so put an end to the combat and getting his battered and almost senseless head under his arm fast in that peculiar fix known to the fancy pleasantly by the name of chancery he held him firmly while with monotonous and brutal strokes he beat his fist as it seemed almost into his face a cry of shame broke out from the crowd for it was plain that the beaten man was now insensible and supported only by the herculean arm of the bully the round and the fight ended by his hurling him upon the ground falling upon him at the same time with his knee upon his chest the bully rose wiping the perspiration from his white face with his blood-stained hands but ned laid stretched and motionless upon the grass it was impossible to get him upon his legs for another round so he was carried down just as he was to the pond which then lay closed to the old park gate 
and his head and body were washed beside it contrary to the belief of all he was not dead he was carried home and after some months to a certain extent recovered but he never held up his head again and before the year was over he had died of consumption nobody could doubt how the disease had been induced but there was no actual proof to connect the cause and effect and the ruffian larkin escaped the vengeance of the law a strange retribution however awaited him after the death of long ned he became less quarrelsome than before but more sullen and reserved some said he took it to heart and others that his conscience was not at ease about it be this as it may however his health did not suffer by reason of his presumed agitations nor was his worldly prosperity marred by the blasting curses with which poor moran's enraged mother pursued him on the contrary he had rather risen in the world and obtained regular and well remunerated employment from the chief secretary's gardener at the other side of the park he still lived in chapelizade whither on the close of his day's work he used to return across the fifteen acres it was about three years after the catastrophe we have mentioned and late in the autumn when one night contrary to his habit he did not appear at the house where he lodged neither had he been seen anywhere during the evening in the village his hours of return had been so very regular that his absence excited considerable surprise though of course no actual alarm and at the usual hour the house was closed for the night and the absent lodger consigned to the mercy of the elements and the care of his presiding star early in the morning however he was found lying in a state of utter helplessness upon the slope immediately overlooking the chapelizade gate he had been smitten with a paralytic stroke his right side was dead and it was many weeks before he had recovered his speech sufficiently to make himself at all understood he then made the following relation he had been detained it appeared later than usual and darkness had closed before he commenced his homeward walk across the park it was a moonlit night but masses of ragged clouds were slowly drifting across the heavens he had not encountered a human figure and no sounds but the softened rush of the wind sweeping through bushes and hollows met his ear these wild and monotonous sounds and the utter solitude which surrounded him did not however excite any of those uneasy sensations which are ascribed to superstition although he said he did feel depressed or in his own phraseology lonesome just as he crossed the brow of the hill which shelters the town of chapelizade the moon shone out for some moments with unclouded lustre and his eye which happened to wander by the shadowy enclosures which lay at the foot of the slope was arrested by the sight of a human figure climbing with all the haste of one pursued over the churchyard wall and running up the steep ascent directly towards him stories of resurrectionists crossed his recollection as he observed this suspicious-looking figure but he began momentarily to be aware with a sort of fearful instinct which he could not explain that the running figure was directing his steps with a sinister purpose towards himself the form was that of a man with a loose coat about him which as he ran he disengaged and as well as larkin could see for the moon was again wading in clouds threw from him 
the figure thus advanced until within some two score yards of him it arrested its speed and approached with a loose swaggering gait the moon again shone out bright and clear and gracious god what was the spectacle before him he saw as distinctly as if he had been presented there in the flesh ned moran himself stripped naked from the waist upward as if for pugilistic combat and drawing towards him in silence larkin would have shouted prayed cursed fled across the park but he was absolutely powerless the apparition stopped within a few steps and leered on him with a ghastly mimicry of the defiant stare with which pugilists strive to cow one another before combat for a time which he could not so much as conjecture he was held in the fascination of that unearthly gaze and at the last thing whatever it was on a sudden swaggered close up to him with extended palms with an impulse of horror larkin put out his hand to keep the figure off and their palms touched at least so he believed for a thrill of unspeakable agony running through his arm pervaded his entire frame and he fell senseless to the earth though larkin lived for many years after his punishment was terrible he was incurably maimed and being unable to work he was forced for existence to beg alms of those who had once feared and flattered him he suffered too increasingly under his own horrible interpretation of the preternatural encounter which was the beginning of all his miseries it was vain to endeavour to shake his faith in the reality of the apparition and equally vain as some compassionately did to try to persuade him that the greeting with which his vision closed was intended while inflicting a temporary trial to signify a compensating reconciliation no no he used to say all won't do i know the meaning of it well enough it is a challenge to meet him in the other world in hell where i'm going that's what it means and nothing else and so miserable and refusing comfort he lived on for some years and then died and was buried in the same narrow churchyard which contains the remains of his victim i need hardly say how absolute was the faith of the honest inhabitants at the time when i heard the story in the reality of the preternatural summons which through the portals of terror sickness and misery had summoned bully larkin to his long last home and that too upon the very ground on which he had signalized the guiltiest triumph of his violent and vindictive career end of the village bully the white ship by h p lovecraft this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by tyler doherty the white ship by h p lovecraft i am basil elton keeper of the north point light that my father and grandfather kept before me far from the shore stands the gray lighthouse above sunken slimy rocks that are seen when the tide is low but unseen when the tide is high past that beacon for a century have swept the majestic barks of the seven seas in the days of my grandfather there were many in the days of my father not so many and now there are so few that i sometimes feel strangely alone 
as though I were the last man on our planet. Far from shores came those white-sailed Argozies of old, from far eastern shores where warm sunshine and sweet odors linger about strange gardens and gay temples. The old captains of the sea came often to my grandfather and told him of these things, which in turn he told to my father, and my father told to me, in the long autumn evenings when the wind howled eerily from the east. And I have read more of these things, and many things besides, than the books men gave me when I was young and filled with wonder. But more wonderful than the lore of old men and the lore of books is the secret lore of the ocean. Blue, green, gray, white, or black, smooth, ruffled, or mountainous, that ocean is not silent. All my days have I watched it and listened to it and known it well. At first it told me only the plain little tales of calm beaches in the near ports, but with the years it grew more friendly and spoke of other things, of things more strange and distant in space and time. Sometimes at twilight the gray vapor of the horizon have parted to grant me a glimpse of the way beyond. And sometimes at night the deep waters of the sea have grown clear and phosphorescent to grant me a glimpse of the way beneath. And these glimpses have been as often of the ways that were and the ways that might be, as of the ways that are. For the ocean is more ancient than the mountains, and frightened with the memories and dreams of time. Out of the south it was the way of the white ship, used to come when the moon was full and high in the heavens. Out of the south it would glide very smoothly and silently over the sea. And whether the sea was rough or calm, and whether the wind was friendly or diverse, it would always glide smoothly and silently, its sails distant and its long strained tiers of oars moving rhythmically. One night I spied upon the deck a man, bearded and robed, and he seemed to beckon me to embark for fair unknown shores. Many times afterward I saw him under the full moon, and ever did he beckon me. Very brightly did the moon shine on the night I answered the call and I walked out over the water to the white ship on a bridge of moonbeams. The man who had beckoned me now spoke a welcome to me in a soft language I seemed to know well, and the hours were filled with soft songs of oarsmen as we glided away into the mysterious south, golden with the glow of that full, mellow moon. And when the day dawned, rosy and effulgent, I beheld the green shore of far lands, bright and beautiful, and to me unknown. Up from the sea rose lordly terraces of endure, tree-studded and shewing here and there the gleaming white roofs and colonnades of strange temples. As we drew nearer the green shore, a bearded man told me of the land, the land of Tsar, where dwell all the dreams and thoughts of beauty that come to men once they are forgotten. And when I looked upon the terraces again, I saw that what he said was true, for among the sight before me are many things I had once seen through the mist beyond the horizon and the phosphorescent depths of the ocean. There, too, were forms and fantasy more splendid than I had ever known. The visions of young poets who died and want before the world could learn of what they had seen and dreamed. But we did not set foot upon the sloping meadows of Tsar, 
but it was told that he who treads may never more return to his native shore as the white ship sailed silently away from the temple terraces of czar we beheld on the distant horizon ahead of the spires of a mighty city and the bearded man said to me this is thalorea the city of a thousand wonders wherein resides all those mysteries that man has striven in vain to fathom and i looked again at closer range and saw that the city was greater than any city i had known or dreamed of before into the sky the spires of the temple reached so that no man might behold their peaks and far back beyond the horizon stretched into the grim gray walls over which one might spy only a few roofs weird and ominous yet adorned with rich frenzies and alluring sculptures i yearned mightily to enter this fascinating yet repellent city and besought the bearded man to land me at the stone pier by the huge cavern gate akarir but he gently denied my wish saying into thororion the city of thousand wonders many have passed but none return theory and walk only daemon and mad things that are no longer men and the streets are white with the unburied bones of those who looked upon the Ardonan Lathi that resides over the city. So the white ship sailed on past the walls of Thalarion, and followed for many days a southward flying bird, whose glossy plumage matched the sky out of which it had appeared. Then came we to a pleasant coast gay with blossoms of every hue, or as far inland as we could see, vast lovely groves of radiant arbors beneath the meridian sun, from bowers beyond our view came bursts of song and snatches of lyric harmony interspersed with faint laughter so delicious that i urged the rower onward in my eagerness to reach the scene and the bearded man spoke no word but watched me as i approached the lily-lined shore suddenly the wind blowing from over the flowery meadows and leafy woods when i scent of which i trembled the wind grew stronger and the air was filled with the lethal charnel odor of plague-stricken toes and uncovered cemeteries and as we sailed madly away from the damnable coast the bearded man spoke at last saying this is zura the land of pleasure unattained so once more the white ship followed the birds of heaven over warmed blessed seas fanned by caressing aromatic breezes day after day and night after night did we sail and when the moon was full we would listen to soft songs of oarsmen sweet as on the distant night when we sailed away far from native land and it was by moonlight that we anchored at last in the harbour of sana nile which is guarded by twin headlands of crystals that rise from the sea and meet a represented arc this is the land of fancy and we walked to the verdant shore upon the golden bridge of moonbeams in the land of sana nile there is neither time nor space neither suffering nor death and there i dwelt for many eons green are the groves and pastures bright in fragments the flowers blue and musical the streams clear and cool the fountains and stately and gorgeous the temples castles and cities of sona nile of that land there is no bound for beyond each vista of beauty rises another whom are all gifted in unmarried grace and unalloyed happiness for the eons i dwelt there i wandered blissfully through the gardens where quaint pagodas peep from pleasing clumps of bushes 
and where the white walks are bordered with delicate blossoms i climbed gentle hills whose summits i could see interesting panoramas of loveliness with steeple towns nestling in verdant valleys and with the golden domes of gigantic cities glittering on the infinity distant horizon and i viewed by moonlight the sparkling sea the crystal headlands and the placid harbour wherein lay anchored the white ship it was against the full moon one night the immemorial year of tharp that i saw outlined the beckoning form of the celestial bird and felt the first strings of unrest then i spoke with the bearded man and told him of my new yearnings to depart for remote cathuria which no man hath seen but which all believe to lie beyond the basalt pillars of the west it is in the land of hope and the shine the perfect ideals of all that we know elsewhere or at least so men relate but the bearded man said to me beware of those perilous seas wherein men say cathira lies in sona nile there is no pain nor death but who can tell what lies beyond the basalt pillars of the west nevertheless at the next full moon i boarded the white ship where the reluctant bearded man left the happy harbour for untravelled seas and the birds of heaven flew before and led us towards the basalt pillars of the west but this time the oarsmen sang no soft songs under the full moon in my mind i would often picture the unknown land of cathira with its splendid grooves and palaces would wonder what new delights there awaited for me cathira i would say to myself is the abode of the gods and land of the unnumbered cities of gold its forests of aloe and sandalwood even as the fragrant grooves of camorin and among the trees flutter gay birds sweet with song on the green and flowery mountains of cathiria stand temples of pink marble rich with caverns and painted glories and having in their courtyards cool fountains of silver where the pearl with ravaging music the scented waters that come from the grotto-born river narg and the cities of cathiria are cinctured with golden walls and their pavement also are of gold and the gardens of these cities are strange orchids and perfumed lakes whose beds are of coral and amber at night the streets and the gardens are lit with the gay lanthorns fashioned from the three-coloured shells of the tortoise and here resound the soft notes of the singer and the lutist the houses of the cities of cathira are all palaces each built over a fragrant canal bearing the waters of the sacred narg of marble and porphyry are the houses and roofed with glittering gold that reflects the rays of the sun and enhances the splendour of the cities as blissful gods view them from the distant peaks fairest of all is the palace of the great monarch dorib whom some say to be the demigod and others a god high is the palace of dorib and many are the turrets of marble upon its wall in its wide halls many multitudes assemble and the roof is of pure gold set upon tall pillars of ruby and azure and having such cavern figures of gods and heroes that whom look up in those heights to gaze upon living olympus and the floors of the palace is glass under which flow the colony light waters of the narg gay with the gaudy fish not known beyond the bounds of cathiria thus i would speak to myself of cathiria but ever would the bearded man warn me to turn back to the happy shores of sona nile sona nile is known of men while none hath ever beheld cathiria and on the thirty-first day that we followed the bird we beheld the basalt pillars of the west 
shrouded in the mist they were, so that no man might peer beyond them to see their summits, which indeed some say reach into the heavens. And the bearded man again implored me to turn back, but I heeded him not. For from the mist beyond the basalt pillars, I fancied there came the notes of the singer and the lutist, sweeter than the sweetest songs of Sona Nile, and sounding my own praises, the praises of me, who had voyaged far under the moon and dwelt in the land of fancy. So the sound of the melody, the white ship sailed into the mist betwixt the basalt pillars of the west. When the music ceased, the mist lifted, we beheld not the land of Cytheria, but a swift rushing relentless sea, over which our helpless bark was borne towards some unknown goal. Soon to our ears came the distant thunder of falling waters, and to our eyes appeared on the far horizon ahead the titanic spray of monstrous cataract, wherein the ocean of the world dropped down to abysmal nothingness. Then did the bearded man say to me, with tears on his cheek, We have rejected the beautiful land of Sona Nile, which we may never behold again. The gods are greater than men, and they have conquered. And I closed my eyes before the crash that I knew would come, shuddering out the sight of the celestial bird which flapped its mocking blue wings over the brink of the torrent. Out of the crash came darkness, and I heard the shrieking of men, and of things that were not men. From the east, tempestuous winds arose, and chilled me as I crouched on the slab of the damp stone which had risen beneath my feet. Then, as I heard another crash, I opened my eyes and beheld myself upon the platform of the lighthouse from whence I had sailed so many eons ago. In the darkness, Below there loomed the vast blurred outline of the vessel breaking upon the cruel rocks. And as I glanced out over the waste, I saw that the light had failed for the first time since my grandfather had assumed its care. In the later washes of night, when I went within the tower, I saw on the wall a calendar which still remained as when I had left at the hour I sailed away. With the dawn I descended the tower, and looked for wreckage upon the rocks. A strange dead bird, whose hue was as of the azure sky, and a single shattered spar of a whiteness greater than that of the wave tips or the mountain snow. And thereafter the ocean told me its secrets no more. And though many times since, as the moon shone full and high in the heavens, the white ship from the south came never again. End of The White Ship by H.P. Lovecraft Recording by Tyler Doherty Whoso Diggeth a Pit by Vida Tyler Adams From Weird Tales, May 1924 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org read by dale growthman whoso diggeth a pit by vita tyler adams he came from nowhere just dropped in one morning at the cookhouse during breakfast and asked for a job men were scarce during the first boom of the little oil town that is good men who knew oil drilling and tool sharpening and the construction of derricks 
For that reason, Matt Wilson judged by knowledge first, and character last. So he hired Baden, who at once sat down with the men and ate ravenously, as if famished. He seemed a droll fellow, and the men enjoyed his company, except for one fact. He never at any time looked any one of them straight and square in the eye. Through narrow lids his gaze shifted swiftly from a man's chin to his watch-chain, or to the location of his pockets. It gave the men, at first, an uncanny feeling. But later, as they knew him better, their confidence returned. They jibed him about this habit, finally. But he only laughed, so they labeled him Shifty Baden. His past was a closed book. Once a man had questioned him too closely. His hands were long and slender, but they suddenly revealed hard, knotted muscles, which responded skillfully and brilliantly. "'Good fist-work,' commented Shorty Mason. Shifty Braden accepted the tribute graciously, belittling his prowess modestly, and thus he won Shorty Mason's heart. Other bouts were staged, with Shorty as manager, and money flowed into Shifty's pockets. Shifty some little boxer, commented Shorty, with pride. Yeah, agreed Indian. Boss don't like it, though. Beats him too much. Can't work for a week. Forget him. Shifty said he's not paying us half what we're worth anyway. A man doesn't get enough even to pay his losses. Nope, Indian agreed, stirring the gravel with his foot. Shifty says men are scarce. We should cash in on it, he says. News of the unrest drifted to Matt Wilson as he sat figuring ways and means with the big chief. The swinging screen door opened, letting in a dozen buzzing flies and Red Nelson. We want more pay and time and a half for Sundays, he said bluntly, eyeing Matt Wilson across the top of the battered office desk. The heat was sweltering. The flies buzzed maddeningly. "'Gosh, Matt,' the big chief exploded, "'I thought you said you could handle the men. Better be tending your own end. I'll figure out mine alone.' And he gathered up his figures and puffed out of the office. Matt Wilson was bewildered. "'Why, Red,' he said, "'have you forgotten? I told you, fellows, if you'd stand by me until we got a going, I'd make it up to you.' I meant what I said. Red gazed at the dirt on the floor. That was six months ago, he said sheepishly. We want more pay now. Carefully, confidently, Matt explained to him various data regarding waiting contracts, the outlay of money before income could be expected, anxious investors, the inability to meet more wages now. This work is under the American plan, Red, he reminded him. You agreed to that when you came to work. But I keep my promises. You will surely get time and a half as soon as we get on our feet. If you fellows strike now, you'll ruin us. There'll be no work at all then. Red turned upon him an ugly and sullen look. You refuse then? We haven't the money to swing it now, Red. Without another word, Red turned and left the office, 
banging the screen door violently behind him. Matt Wilson stared after him incredulously. Red Nelson, his best engine man, and his loyalty. Matt had never found occasion to question it. Scarcely had the door closed when another shadow darkened the opening, a large, abundant shadow, the jolly and motherly person of Widow Gates. But today no smile wreathed her usually tranquil visage. Rather, she trembled with wrath as she faced Matt Wilson. What sort of men are you hiring now, Matt Wilson? she exploded. Of all the low-down, ornery he-snakes that I've ever saw, that there shifty Braden beats em all. If I could lay my hands on him, he'll cuss his birthday and wish he were a worm to crawl underground where he belongs. What do you mean, wishing him on us, as it trying to build up a peaceful, law-abiding town with morals? Haven't we done well by you? she demanded. Matt Wilson gazed at her, his mind a whirl. Sit down, Mrs. Gates, he said. She waved the proffered seat aside. Here I be standing this morning around the corner of the main bunkhouse, and there is Shifty talking to the kid. She was delivering the washing, seeing as it's Friday. What's your name? he asked. I'm the kid, she answers. I brung your washing. Oh ho, he says, and sizes her up and down. You do the washing. No, Mrs. Gates does, she said. I deliver for her. Get them, too. Then she shoves his parcel toward him. He takes it and says, thanks, and squeezes her hand right there before my very eyes, although he didn't see me. And the poor kid being, as you know, nobody home, she tapped her forehead significantly with her finger, she grins and looks up at him stupid-like. And that vile snake runs his hand up and down her arm. How's that? he asked. And she says, tickles, and giggles at him. I couldn't stand it any longer, so I came around the corner and gave him such a look that would freeze him to an ice cake, were he not so hard-boiled. The widow panted for breath. And I sends the kid home, and he's found out she lives with me, and he's come past so often it's made me nervous. And the kid stays inside and sulks, and won't help me, except when I let her out so she can talk to him. Matt Wilson passed his hand over his forehead. Troubles never come singly, he cited. That is not all, Mrs. Gates. The men have planned to strike. They want more money. Shifty must be back of it. They were satisfied until he came. He thought a moment. Tell Chris Younger I want to see him, he commanded. The widow waddled off excitedly. Chris Younger came at once. I want you to go out to the field and take Baden's place and send him to me at once. Matt Wilson's voice was hard. Baden was sullen. I was just amusing the kid, he offered. As to the strike, I have nothing to do with it. If the men want to strike, I can't help it. Matt Wilson was furious. It rather amused Baden. Got any proof about the strike? Baden asked. No, you cur, but I have about the kid, and that's enough. Get your time and get out. Baden's eyes narrowed. 
Slowly, he advanced toward Matt. He raised his right hand. It was knotted into the famous fighting fist. But Matt was before him. Swiftly, he opened a drawer, and Baden was staring into a wicked little contrivance of steel and pearl. He turned and skulked out of the office, like a beaten thing. But, once clear of the office and out of sight, he turned, nodded his fist, and shook it maliciously toward the way he had come. He was in an ugly frame of mind. By nature underhanded, he went about getting his revenge entirely under cover. He found the kid delivering clothes as usual. He had only a moment. Hello, kid, he greeted brightly. The kid snickered. Hello yourself, she responded. Say, like to go for an automobile ride this afternoon, he asked. Sure. The kid's vacant eyes took on a happy expression. All right, that's fine. Now listen, kid. Today there's going to be a fire in one of those oil tanks out there. He waved toward the field of tanks below the lower derricks. When the fire gets going good and everybody's gone to where it is, I'll come to Mrs. Gates' place for you, and we'll go for a ride. Baden turned to go. Now don't forget, if you're not at Mrs. Gates' front gate waiting for me, I won't take you. Remember when you see the smoke, I'm coming for you. A sharp whistle, like a little boy calling his dog, sounded from around the corner and Baden struck off in the direction of the oil tanks. Carefully, he skirted the derricks with their choking engines and labyrinth of crawling cables. Down the gentle slope he crept to where the great storage tanks lay blinking in the hot sun. He chose the furthest tank. It lay glimmering at him in the sun, huge, black with weather stains, shimmering in the heat. Baden turned his eyes from the tank and carefully scanned the field around him. Five other tanks made up the field, one fifty feet away, the others more distant. They reminded Baden of big stone animals, quiet, peaceful, waiting for his mischief. There was no life about them. Not a human being was in sight. Deftly, Baden took out of his hip pocket a small cloth bag. From under the rubber band around it he pulled out a yellow notebook and tore from between its covers a white square of paper. Quickly he filled the paper with the contents of the cloth bag. Next a match from his vest pocket. Another quick look around and he bent his head forward, cupping his hands to his mouth, and the cigarette was lighted. With a life spring, he made the first rung of the iron ladder that clung to the side of the tank. He climbed rapidly. He pressed more firmly between his lips the forbidden cigarette, and bent further over the trapdoor, the better to examine the contents of the tank, puffing rapidly the while that the cigarette might be well lighted before he dropped it in. He balanced his body easily on the top rung of the ladder, but it was slippery. His foot slid. He grasped the side of the tank wildly, lost his hold, and fell headlong into the reservoir. The oil was black, heavy, and unrefined. It received his body without sound, and sucked it 
halfway to the bottom. Oil filled his ears, his nose, oozed between his parted lips, covered his face, his clothes, and his shoes with slime. Now Baden was young and full of strength and the love of life. He fought his way valiantly to the top with the long, measured strokes of a practiced swimmer. He reached up a slimy hand to brush the oil from his eyes. Failing in this, he shook his head vigorously and managed to open his eyes at last. All was black around him. Accustomed to the glare of sunlight, his eyes could not penetrate the thick gloom. He turned his attention to his swimming. "'Stuff's easy to tread if only my shoes were off,' he muttered. Gradually, his vision became clearer, and he was able to discern the sight of the tank. He swam toward it. The crude oil belabored the process, and he spent his strength freely. But at last he reached his goal. The sight of the tank rose above him, smooth, slimy, bare of any handhold. He looked above. The trapdoor shone distant, a square of light in a vast expanse of gloom and shadow, unattainable, mocking. Help! 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 he cried. His voice, choked with oil, echoed back feebly from the sides of the tank. Then it was that he looked around him. His oil-sodden eyes opened wide in terror. God, help me now! He could not speak. He could only breathe the words. A hundred globlets of fire danced before him, bouncing like rubber balls across the thick oil, sputtering in one pool, igniting others. No steady conflagration burned, due to the quality of the impurities in the oil, the fire had not yet found constant feed. The top of the oil was like a huge frying pan, in which dozens of fiery balls spat and sputtered at each other, to break out at last, scattering flame in all directions. They lighted up the interior of the tank in sulfuric colors, blue and green and royal purple, and the golden glow of lightning. The little white tube of tobacco floated innocently near Baden, its fire spreading, its mission fulfilled. Baden gasped. Help! he cried frantically from between the thick oil-smudged lips. The cry was smothered, gummed in his throat, with oil. Baden made a superhuman effort and spat out the filth. By this time his shoes were thoroughly saturated with oil, and weighed heavily, bearing him downward. Every movement of his legs cost him effort, which he could ill spare. His clothes, drenched with oil, were oppressive, clinging to his body like slimy hands, eager, waiting to pull him downward. He straggled against their deadliness. A ball of burning oil burst near him, spraying his face with liquid fire. It seared into the flesh. Automatically, unthinkingly, he dived back into the oil. He rose further away from the fire, and now he was continually on the move, dodging, ducking, a weary chase, with the fireballs constantly increasing in number. At length, a huge ball sprayed him from behind. It covered his matted hair 
with burning oil, and he sank below the surface, suffering excruciating agony. He rose, but now the fire was all about him. The entire surface of the oil was covered with liquid fire, but the color was changed. From the oil the fire rose, dull red, to blacken into suffocating smoke. It filled the tank with deadly fumes. It sucked up the oxygen like a fiery dragon. Was no one coming to help? Baden gasped for breath, choking on the oil. Blinded in the agony of fire and smoke, he realized at last that his was not to be the victory. The flames settled once more upon him. There was no escaping them. He saw nothing, heard nothing, felt only the torture, the soul-racking pain. His mind was strangely clear, only a few more seconds to live. Dimly he realized it. Hazily he racked his wavering mind. The old, half-forgotten training served him not falsely. The Lord, his weary feet trod the oil slower and slower. Lord, have mercy. The thick black smoke settled down upon his head. His nostrils distended. His hands flew upward. Slowly, his body sank. On my soul. The words were inaudible. The oil closed over him silently. A few slow, sluggish ripples marked his passage. From the little white wicker gate that marked the entrance to Mrs. Gates' front yard, the kid watched, impatiently, a huge black cloud of smoke rise from the distant trapdoor and spiral upward, and hang heavy, black, and foreboding above the big oil tank. The End of Whoso Diggeth a Pit by Vita Tyler Adams <laughs>